Hey there, and welcome to another episode of The Bible. Wait, what? Yes, this is the podcast that unravels the mysteries of the Bible's most perplexing, puzzling, and thought-provoking passages. My name is Rowan, and each session I'm joined by a member of our team at C3 Church, Camden, Picton, and Thoreau, as they quiz me on some of the more complicated, confusing, challenging, and even confronting passages that we read in our weekly Bible reading plan. understand that reading the Bible can be a challenging and perplexing experience. Many people just don't know where to start, they get confused, and so they give up. Well, that's why this podcast exists, to equip you with the tools and the knowledge to explore the richness and depth of the Bible for yourself. So grab your Bible, take a deep breath, and join us as we explore this week's passages. learn more about us or to get in touch with us at C3 Church Camden, Picton and Thoreau, visit any of our three locations websites. That's c3camden.church, c3picton.church and c3thoreau.church. Or you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram and YouTube just by searching for any of our locations names. So without any further delay, let's dive into today's conversation. called the bible wait what? what hey everyone hello that is ab- that is officially our name i we have discussed it already did we say it was because of chat gtp uh yeah i think we did did we confess that we sin confessed that. yeah yeah So I'm sitting down, my name's Jeannie and I'm sitting down with Pastor Rowan of C3 Camden, Picton and Thoreau Churches. Hi everyone. And we're here discussing the Bible plan that we've been reading. We're on week two and we're reading today, we're discussing Judges 5, 6, 7, 13 and 14 and John 16, 17, 12, 13 and 14. Just a small amount of content, Jeannie. Small amount of content, yeah. Just 10 chapters. And I should point out to those of you who are watching us on YouTube, you might be wondering why my back is to the screen. It's because this role of host is actually going to be played by a couple of people. So it's not necessarily going to be me uh, every week. What does that mean? Is it just you don't want to put all your makeup on, Jeannie? Uh, It it is a good thing I don't have to to put makeup on. I need makeup on. It's very bright on the next lights. I don't myself on camera. But this is because he's in the hot seat, see? This ah, is the pastor right. in the hot seat. This I'm is not. like when you get interviewed on television and you don't actually see the person doing the interviewing. Is That's that right, yeah. Okay. But more to, more to making the point, I suppose, that I'm essentially playing the role of the every person. You sure. know, so that what any does that make me? That makes you the pastor. Still the uh, pastor. As long as it's not the person with all the answers. That's fine. <laughs> You're the person with the, what, 30 years of uh, Bible yeah. knowledge? 30 years of Bible experience. Bible which experience. Makes me, uh, which makes me Pastor a, experience. a junior. He's a junior. He's a junior. Yeah. All right. Not well. junior in age, but junior. Well, should we get someone else then? <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I wonder. I've seen some of your questions. I think this is going to be a challenge. Uh, well, we appreciate you listening to us. So we're conscious that the last ones, we've probably gone a little bit long, but we do love to talk about the We are the discussing word. whether or not we need to go shorter or longer. Go but shorter. We, we feel like 
there's some context there that helps people to understand. There is context and hopefully you're keeping up. So thanks for listening. And today we're just going to go straight into this week. We're discussing uh, the Holy Spirit as the convictor. Last week it was breath. Yep. This is the convictor. So uh, Pastor Ron, what is a, what is a convictor? Well, the convictor could have a, a positive or a negative connotation to it, I guess. So that would be coming out of uh, Jesus specifically saying that he s- when he sends the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will convict the world um, in relation to sin, righteousness and judgment. So I think when we use the word convictor, we could take a negative connotation on that, uh, that, the, that the job of the convictor in a, in a legal courtroom is to pronounce judgment upon. And you wouldn't want to be the, on the on the receiving end of that conviction. So you declared guilty. You declared guilty, that, and, and you're now living with the consequences of being under the convictor. And I think that's probably how most people would, um, would re- think about that, just because of our cultural undertaking. I think, though, that it's worth understanding that in the context of what Jesus is saying there, it's actually a positive thing. It's not a negative thing. The role of the Holy Spirit as convictor is that he loves us so much that he will... Uh, convict us, as in give us an inner conviction that certain things are right and wrong, which goes harkens back to the tree of the knowledge of right and wrong, good and evil, that there is a role that the Spirit is playing, which is trying to help us to stay on the right track. And when we get off track, He loves us enough to actually convict us so that we would be inspired uh, by the Spirit as well to bring about change and, and change our ways before we destroy ourselves or those around us. I'm so glad you said that because I've always thought of it as such a scary thing. Mm. Like you're convicted, you're in trouble. Yes. You're a bad girl. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely, I don't think that's the context. It's not the context. No, no, not at all. It's, it's uncomfortable. Don't get me wrong. I mean, none of us like to come under conviction in any area of our life. We never, if if your friend says to you, I think you're a bit out of line with that behavior there. If you're like me, anything like me, you're going to fight back against that at least initially. But ultimately, faithful are the wounds of a friend and if the spirit loves us enough to actually uh, bring us conviction then it should bring about the desire in us for change so convicted to change convicted not convicted to, to judgment die or yes, ju- yes, that's <laughs> convicted right. to change so there's a sense of hope with the yeah. idea of the, of the holy yeah. spirit as being convictor definitely think of it that way all right that's the holy spirit's role Okay, I better yep. change all my notes and questions because it was all <laughs> it was all based on the bad stuff. But uh, last last time we talked about uh, we started with Judges five, and I think this time we'll just go through Judges in its context, and sure. and rather than skipping uh, on our daily reading, which would go from an Old Testament to a New Testament, just simply because just I think they flow, flow sure. and we might, might go a little quicker. Yeah, sure. Yeah. We One thought I want to come back to what you said about Jesus oh. being convicted. Just oh, go go. Yeah. So. Um, now I've lost my train of thought. Oh, no, this but happens. This happens, doesn't <laughs> it? No, I think what I was trying to say was that when we think of uh, Jesus as being, um, or the Spirit as being the convictor, no, I've lost it, don't worry about wait, it. Wait, d- wait, Jesus is the convictor or the no, Spirit is the what convictor? what I was going to say was that when we were talking about the Spirit of God being, this is going to sound crazy on the podcast, but it's just come back to me. So we all lose our train of thought. When we think about the convictor being the convictor unto judgment, we need to understand that that's not, while, while there is judgment, we talked about that in the story of, uh, of last, last week, the story of uh, Deborah bringing judgment upon others, upon Jabin's army. What we I think we useful to realise is that God's ultimate intention is restitution and reconciliation, not judgment. So Jesus says, I did not come into the world to 
condemn the world, but the world might be saved through me. So that flows for the Holy Spirit too, that if he's going to convict us, it's for the purpose of salvation. It's not for the purpose of judgment. You know how you lost your train of thought? You lost yours? Oh, no, I didn't lose my train of thought. You've actually just changed my entire life. <laughs> I think it's just because I always grew up. Well, I didn't always grow up, but there's this sort of sense that the you know the Bible bashing, like you're here to be judged, Hellfire you're here to be yeah, you're in trouble. Uh, but what you're saying is the opposite of that. Uh, yes, I'm going to show you the sins that you have done, and I am going to hopefully through me you are going to change and be a, uh, do better things. Yes, <laughs> I've lost be, my be, language. Be, yeah, yeah. Be, be a better representative of Christ on the earth. So Christianity isn't just about telling you, stop doing this, stop doing that, you're wrong. It's actually about helping to try and transform you into being a person who is more like Christ, full of love, doing good things for the earth and good things for yourself and for everyone else. And representing like Christ that. well. Yeah, Re- yeah, it is that. It is that. And that's not to say that there isn't judgment, that it, it would be unfair of God if he wasn't a judge of, uh, of wrong doing he he has to that's part of his nature uh to not judge wrong is to be unloving you know none of us want um or expect that a a criminal should walk free there's a sense in which there's something inside of us that wants there to be consequences for wrongdoing and that's part of god's nature but he is slow to be angry he is abounding in grace and mercy his desire is that none should perish but that all should repent and come to work so that's that's God's overarching invitation always. All, the, all day I had, held out my hand to a people, a stubborn and obstinate people who would not receive it, I think it says when it quotes the Old Testament. His heart is always conviction for change, not conviction first and foremost for judgment. And you've gotten this because you haven't just read little bits of the Bible. You've read the entire thing. Oh, Yes, multiple times. Because if I you can read little bits. You could read a snippet and think God's a vindictive who's just going to bring judgment. And, and while that's there, that's not how God wants to reveal himself. First and foremost, he, his desire is to reveal himself as a loving father, Abba Father, who, who deeply cares for us. And we have gone astray, but desperately wants to win us back into relationship with him because he knows that ultimately we will destroy our own lives and destroy the lives of those around us if we sever that relationship with him. And is this why we're doing this Bible plan so that we don't just, we're reading the whole Bible, we don't just get little bits, we're actually going back, reading in context so we can learn the true full story of what God is saying. That's exactly why we've tried to put this together in such a way that there is chapters in blocks as much as possible. We're not doing the whole Bible so we couldn't do it fully, but I've tried to create chapters in blocks that largely fit the theme as much as possible fit the theme of any given week because i want you to encourage you to read scripture in its context okay so let's start on on the chapter judges five (laughs) judges five So last last podcast we did, we talked about Deborah and Jael's victory, as you mentioned before, in Judges 4. Judges 5 is is basically a song yes, about is. what happened in Judges 4. 
of the battle. If you if you haven't heard that podcast or you haven't read it, uh, there is a huge battle which is won. Um, there's Deborah as a prophetess and she says they, they're going to win at the hands of a woman and JL, she wins the battle by taking out the bad guy, evil guy, army commander, Sisera, by... Um, <laughs> Through the tent peg. Putting a nail through his head, yeah. And so here we have uh, essentially what we would call a victory song. Yes, it is. Written about. Which is a very common genre in that day. Oh, where else do we see a song like this? I think, was it Miriam's song? Miriam's song, yep. Miriam's song. And if you don't know that, Miriam is Moses' wife. Sister. Sister. (laughs) Let's be clear. Yeah. Sister, not wife. Zibra is, the, is Zibra, the wife. Then she's written a song just after she's seen the Egyptians. Um, after the parting of the Red Sea. After the parting of the, the Red Sea. Thing, yes. So there's just assume that she's seeing bodies all around her mm. and they there's this huge victory and she writes, which is a, a praise. Yes. So she sings praise to, to God. Yeah. And this is actually not just a unique thing to Israel. Ancient Near East history, it was common to put their battle victories into song it was into songs yeah and if you read it don't think of it a song like today think remember it's in a different language it doesn't rhyme like our songs rhyme it's it's different yeah and oftentimes with poetry in the bible um you will come back to this time and time again throughout the podcast but oftentimes uh, ancient thought was po- when we talk about poetry it wasn't rhyming of even rhythm or 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 words like our ry- rhyming is it was more often rhyming of thought so I often say one phrase and then repeat it in a different way. So the two phrases mean the same thing. That's just the standard way that ancient poetry was written. So if it reads weird to you, don't worry because it reads translated. weird to everyone. Yes, that's right. It's been translated as <laughs> best as it could. Yeah. Um, and then we've got a, a lot of our songwriters will try and take it and put, it, put the songs and the psalms into, into music. But we've got to realise that they were written differently to that. Yeah, and it, in sorry, you yeah, go ahead. No? I was just going to say, so in this song we have Deborah and Barak, who was the leader of the Israelite army or the tribes. Uh, sorry, uh, Naphtali, and I don't remember them, but anyway, there was a couple of tribes. <laughs> there was a couple of tribes. There were a couple of tribes that didn't. Yeah, yeah. That didn't, and yeah. this is the praise song. And in this, they uh, they talk about JL and how wonderful she was as a woman. She's uh, what was she was. Mighty in women, what was it? Blessed among women. She was blessed among, blessed women. among women. Yeah, and so the first half of the song is praises. And this is where I want to, I don't, this is where I want to question. Uh, my question comes down. Before chat verse 27, which is speaking of the. I like this, you got right to the end. We're going to be quick, quick with this chapter. Well, no, there's a lot in it, but <laughs> this is my main point. Before trap tra- uh, chat. Verse, I'll get verse, it right, G. Verse 27. <laughs> verse 27. Should we read it as literal? Like it's literally discussing what happened in the Bible. Uh, in the Bible. In the in the, the, in, the, the uh, in the battle that we just read, it's literally going through it right. again. I see where you're going with this. Okay. Yep. And then 28 and beyond, it shifts gear and it talks about the perspective of the battle from Sisera's mother. Sisera's mother. Oh, I see. How could they know? How could they know? That that was something that happened. We should say, so it says from after Sisera has been killed in verse 20, 27, it says from the, wi- from the window, Sisera's mother looked out. Through the window, she watched for his return saying, why is his chariot so long in coming? Why don't we hear the sound of chariot wheels? And his wise women answer, her wise women answer, ah. Trigger warning, trigger warning. Go on. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, go on. They must be 
dividing the captured plunder. A woman or two for every man. You can see why there's a trigger warning here. We talked about this in the last podcast, that this is what would happen to women horribly um, and when they were cap- when they were made captive um, and ro- robes for us and all and so on and so forth so I guess what you were saying is how do we know that's the case is that what your question was out of that how do well, we know that was well, really what happened rather I mean how do we read this because sometimes we tend to read it as literal but here it, it is it's skipping well, into it's, something it's else it's clearly skipping into an assumption into assumption yeah yes and I just when I was I didn't quite know how to understand that. Oh, okay. So, so if we come at the Bible very literally, then we would be thinking, well, it's written there, black and white, so that must have been what happened. And I would have been raised in the past to think that must have been what happened, that somehow the Holy Spirit ha- has inspired Deborah as she's written this song to give her insight into an actual event that was happening in Sisera's hometown, with, a, with his mum sitting at the window, wondering why he was taking so long. Could that be the case? I think it could be. But I'm much more comfortable as I've matured with allowing it to be, um, it be poetic language that's illustrating a greater point than whether or not it actually happened literally. God was working with them. So let's assume that wasn't actually an event or they didn't know about that event, that somehow the Holy Spirit didn't reveal this particular event to them, I'm very comfortable with the fact that that could be poetic language that is illustrating what would normally happen in those situations as a way of um, embellishing the victory story of what God had done through his people. Does that? That makes sense. So it's not necessarily real. It could be an embellishment of the story. And we need to pay attention to when the language shifts a bit like yeah, that I think when so. we yeah. when we're reading it. Now I'm not. I want to stress. I'm not saying that 100%. It's not. It, it might be literal. I'm not saying it's not. But I'm much more comfortable with the fact that it doesn't have to be in order to make the point. And I think when we're reading a lot of Old Testament scriptures, we need to be comfortable with the fact that what is the greater, deeper point? What is the meaning behind the text that the Spirit is wanting us to get? And it. And sometimes the 100% literal rendition of something doesn't. So let's face it, if that story was true or not, it doesn't change the deeper point of God's victory for his people um, in this situation. That's true. And skipping back to verse 8. Verse 8, oh, here we go. We're going all over the place. Skipping through quickly. Yeah, skipping through. But uh, it points out here that that this time in Israel's history, they had chosen new gods. Yes. And that there was war at the gates and yes. the people were abandoned because they had rejected God. Yes. There was misery and defenselessness. Um, it paints a dark time. A dark in time. History. Yeah. Yeah. And, but it, I guess it's summing up in a sense, using poetry to say, look, this is what we've done as a people. We've rejected God. God has given us this huge victory again. Yes. Turn, and he's inviting us back into relationship with him. What do we do with this victory? We've been given this victory. What do we do with this now? Well, we should uh, bring back, bring, go, come back into relationship with the Lord is really the invitation that I read in this. And they did. It says there was peace in the land for 40 years. 40 years. 40 years for a generation or so. And then it went awry again as it did multiple times in the book of Judges. And there are multiple stories of this where the people wander off, God brings them back again yeah. and blesses them with either a battle or... Um, out of a famine or something yep. like that. And so that 
should we really take from this, be reminded, hey, if we wander far, God is still calling us back. That is a, a common refrain in the book of Judges. So, and, and, a, and a historic, God's using historical narrative to tell a story of our relationship with him, that he's always never, we're never too far away. He's always reaching back. I think it's like seven times in the book of Judges, we should tell, I think if I'm correct, seven times they wander and seven times they come back or God redeems them with a judge. That should tell us that seven number of completion, if that's correct, that, that there's God's constantly reaching out all day. And there's this pattern, this cycle. They, they receive blessing from God. They start to rely on the blessing rather than the blesser. And then they start to become self-sufficient and self-focused. That leads to them turning away from God, which leads to them becoming under the judgment of a foreign nation, which leads to hardship, which leads to them calling back out to God, which leads to God's deliverance. So you see the cycle pattern? Cycle. So if we don't learn our lesson once, we it plays out again. Yeah, we go around the mountain. And again, and we yep. go around yep. and again. And yep. within that, we should realise and be aware that the, there is a lesson, which is it's very easy in times of affluence and comfort to forget our Creator and f- rely on ourselves. And when we do, it's a slippery slope from there to denying God, to leave, finding ourselves in a hard time and then needing to cr- come back to Him. So the only way to break the cycle is to... Remember the Lord. Remember always. the Lord. And he says Remain that in him. over and over again. Tell your children yes. about me. Yes. Remember the stories. And yep. this is why they, I guess they would have the song. This is why they to sung remember, a song. Yep. Remember the stories. Because it's easier to remember a song. You can sing. You can yep. teach to children than it is to teach them yep, to totally. read. And, and, and Psalms, there's great, some great Psalms <laughs> that actually recite the entire history of Israel in the song. Yes, I do know of yeah. those. Yes. Yeah. And I have a... Um, you, we're talking about the Holy Spirit here as a convictor. I missed that in this chapter. Wh- where is it? Do you have some insight that I don't have? Uh, no, it, 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 sometimes I, I, I can't off the top of my head think about what that might have been. I, just because it's in, just because um, that's the thing doesn't mean every chapter, every week will have that thing because I've tried to have some sense of consistency in, in reading through the Bible. So some stories are linked together. Um, so off the top of my head, doesn't necessarily mean that the Holy Spirit is, there's a reference directly to the Holy Spirit as convictor in the story. It's probably just following on from the judges. That said, what I just said about learning from this story. They have the learned, Spirit yes. Telling us, you need to learn from this so they you don't do it again. Yes. Well, they, uh, but they also have learned because they're writing this they're praise writing this song. song. They've song had down. this. Yeah. All right. Okay. Well, that's, I have, I have no further questions no further on questions, Judges, Judges 5. <laughs> Should we... Um, Move along to Judges 6 and 7. Let's do it. So here we are. We're going to pick up with Judges 6 and 7. And Judges uh, 6 is... uh, I love these stories, actually, Judges 6 and 7. They... (laughs) I've lost my notes. All right, off the top of my head. Gideon. Gideon, yes. This is the story about Gideon. Oh, it says here, Jeannie, read 6, 1 to 4. Let's do that. Follow your notes, Jeannie. See, I'm in first person. (laughs) She's talking to herself. Jeannie, read Read 1 to 4. Okay, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight, so the Lord handed them over to the Midianites for seven years. The Midianites were so cruel that the Israelites made hiding places for themselves in the mountain cave in the mountains caves and strongholds 
1 to 4. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, marauders from Midian, Amalek and the people of the east would attack Israel, camping in the land and destroying crops as far away as Gaza. They left the Israelites with nothing to eat, taking all the sheep, goats, cattle and donkeys. So talk about not learning a lesson. They're back here they again. Find themselves here again. They're back here, and this seems really bad. They're under um, control of some pretty seriously mean people. M- vicious marauders. Marauders. Is the word it uses. That's loaded up with meaning, isn't it? Mm. And often, like all of us, when we're in a bad place, we cry out to God, yep. which is what they do in verse yep. seven. And when they cried out to the Lord because of Midian, the Lord sends a prophet to the Israelites, and he says. Basically, this is what I, the God, I, God says, I brought you up out of slavery. God here is reminding, reminding them, them hey to guys, remember. Remember what I did for you? Yes. I, I was the one who rescued you. I rescued you. I drove out your enemies. Yeah, I to- and I told you I am the Lord your God. You must not worship the gods of other people, um, but you haven't listened to me. That's right. So they, wis- they, they are in this terrible place again. But the key verse here, I think, is... But you have not listened to me. And then in verse 11, we find someone who's willing to listen to the Lord. Because the angel of the Lord came and he sits beneath the tree and he speaks to this man, Gideon, who is threshing wheat at the bottom of a wine press to hide the grain from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Mighty hero, the Lord is with you. Talk about seeing something in someone that they didn't see in themselves. That's right. And I have a question. The angel of the Lord appears and says, mighty hero, the Lord is with you. So who's the angel of the Lord? And is the Lord different to the angel of the Lord? Because the angel is saying, the Lord is with you. Oh, wow. Jeannie, that's a big one. <laughs> oh, I know it is. That's a massive and I'm excited one. to discuss it oh, because okay. many times in the Bible, it says the angel of the Lord, yeah. and then it switches gear yeah. into what we assume yep. to be actual Jesus. Right. Yep. Right? Okay. It's weird. Now, there are lots of schools of thought among theologians on this topic, all genuinely wanting to do the right thing, figure it out. Um, so I am certainly not a theologian and by no means an expert. I was taught that the angel of the Lord is a pre-incarnate, meaning prior to Christmas story version of Jesus, that, that, this, that Jesus, the second person in the Godhead, comes as the angel of the Lord. Um, I think there's good evidence for that. Uh, I think to the writings, to, the, to people who are understanding this at the time, they certainly didn't have an understanding of the person of Jesus coming and manifesting himself as a, as a, a looking like a man, but not, not a physical man. They didn't understand all of that. They had a much uh, much more broader understanding of the concept of their deity of, of Yahweh. It's much more, when I say broad, not a specific understanding that we have post-resurrection. So I think put yourself in their shoes. They had they didn't necessarily think of this as Jesus. Put it that way. No, I know they didn't. You're right about that. And I I should have said them. As, we see it as Jesus, but I was just wondering what scriptures does Gideon have at this point? Does he have writings? Does he have anything? He would have. I, w- I would assume that he would have some context of Moses' writings. So they would have, uh, he, in one form or another, by this time they would have the Torah 
Um, it might not be in its final format that we have it because it was edited and redacted and put together in its final format some thousand years after this, after they come back from, from bondage in, in Babylon. But yes, they would, be, they would have the stories, whether it's how much of it's written down, that they've got, everyone's got a copy of the Bible in front of them, probably not, but they know those stories. They know the story of the Exodus, they know the story of Abraham and the patriarchs, and they know that God has delivered them as a nation from Israel and uh, from e Egypt and brought them into the Promised Land. That would be the bulk of what they would have. And Gideon himself, he, if he didn't have the texts, uh, but he has the stories, as you said, but he certainly knows enough to say in verse 13, uh, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are all the miracles our ancestors told us about? Didn't they say the Lord brought us up out of Egypt, but now the Lord has abandoned us? Yeah. So he's listening. Remember, I said he's this guy listening, and he knows the stories. He might be just the only person in this area who is Who's seeking and listening. Seeking for those stories, yes. Seeking and remembering because they seem to have all forgotten them. That's yep. why they're in this bad place That's why they're in, in the a bad place. place. They've okay. either forgotten them or ignored them, one or the other. Yep. So could we say that his heart and mind is towards God, you think, if he has this answer? Yeah, I think that – I wouldn't say he's the only one, but um, there's something about this man, even though he's in a pretty dark place, um, he's certainly got something, some bent towards – worship of Yahweh because the angel of the Lord comes to him and says, God is with you, you mighty man of valor. And when he hears this. While he's threshing while he's in a, in a and hiding it. Press and hiding and it. And hiding it, yeah. That's right. And so he is sitting there working away. The angel of the Lord By the way, you don't thresh wheat in the bottom of a wine No, you press. don't. You thresh no. it out in the open where the wind will blow yes. the chaff away. So that should be stated, yeah. Yeah, so that you don't, it's the opposite of what you want to be doing. Yeah, to think about that. Wheat, wine. Don't go together. They don't go together. No, no. No. Not at all. Okay. So he knows enough to know that God has spoken to people at times. Yes. So yes. the angel of the Lord appears to him and he hears this message, but then he doubts it. Even though he's standing there with him and he asks God for a sign or not the angel of the Lord for a sign. Yes. And when he, uh, he provides dinner for him, mm -hmm. the angel of the Lord then changes somewhat and causes fire and then goes ascends into the sky and at this point Gideon thinks he's seen the face of God so he doesn't think it's an angel anymore he's thinking it's God yeah I, I don't know if we so it gets back to your question what are, what is the angel of the Lord I think we need to understand the progressive revelation here so whether it would appear wouldn't it, at face value that when he first sees the angel of the Lord he thinks it's either an angel or a man or some kind of thing. But at some point he realises that he has seen the divine, that he's had an encounter with the divine. That definitely seems to be, if you remove our 21st century lens and our New Testament lens, it seems to be what the story is saying. That somewhere on the line, when, when the, the angel of the Lord accepts this offering and it burns up and he goes, oh, now I've seen God. That was that was God appearing to me. Is that, what you, is that how you read it? That's how I read it. Yeah, and yeah. then... Why does he say, "Oh, sovereign Lord, I'm doomed. I've seen the face of the, I've seen the angel of the Lord face, face to, face. to face." So there's there's a sense, an understanding that uh, you would not be able to see God's face, and that could have come out of Moses, could have been in their narrative uh, when God said to Moses, um, no, when he wanted to see the Lord face to face, and Moses said, and, and the Lord said, "No one can see me face to face, but I'll hide you in a rock and I'll put my." hand over you and as I walk past you won't see my face but you'll see 
the back of my glory. So probably rooted in an ancient Near East belief that to somehow behold the face of a divine God was to somehow cause you to die, I would assume. Um, you might have to Google that or ask ChatGP that, <laughs> ChatGPT that, but that's what it had been birthed in this sense. Of, and the same thing happens in the story of Samson's parents as well, exactly the same thing. They yeah. they freak out because they think they've seen the face of the Lord. And I'm glad you say that because we're going to get to Samson. Get to that okay. So I was going to make that point, so it's good yeah. to have that now. Yeah. But uh, the, the Lord, and this is where he's now um, described as the Lord, not the angel of the Lord. He says, it's all right, the Lord replied. Do not be afraid. You will die. You will not die. Will you? <laughs> you oh, no, you I shouldn't be reading this. <laughs> getting it wrong. Yes, yeah, so you will not die. So he has this big moment with, with the Lord, yeah. right? A transformation, a transformational moment, I suppose. He's changed. Yes. He's this guy working in the in the wine press. Suddenly he's encountered the he's Lord. He's encountered God. And then what I find really interesting about the text is that next there is a test. He's had an encounter. Now there's a test where the Lord says to him, go and pull down all those Asherah poles, which I know those to be like altars or worship yes, things. Yes, statues and poles that were statues. used in pagan worship. Yeah. yeah. So the ho- basically his whole area, his tribe were um, worshipping Baal. Uh, yep. And they had these yep. poles. Yep. And he's Baal and Asherah, two different gods. Yep. Yeah. And, and he's Asherah two was the female version, f- female, I think probably the partner of Baal or something like that. Yeah. And God says, go tear them down, uh, even though you may be terrified. And uh, Gideon is terrified because we know he goes and does it in the night yeah, when no right. one's going to do it. Yeah. But he's asked to obey God. Yep. And he obeys God. He goes and tears them down. And after he obeys God, we then read in 34 that, where's the page? 34, basically that the spirit of the Lord took possession of Gideon. Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon with power, my version says. Clothed Gideon. So we've talked a lot about the Holy Spirit and it comes to you when you're a Christian. But here, is it that he, because he obeyed the Lord, there was the test and he obeyed and then the Spirit comes upon him. Or what's the word? I have take possession. What do you have? Yeah, clothed with power. Which is actually what it says about Jesus. He says you'll receive the Holy Spirit and you'll be clothed with power in Acts 1. As well. Um, so your question, I think, that I hear you say is, was it his obedience that led to this spirit empowering? Yeah. Oh, why didn't the spirit uh, take possession of him before he obeyed? Before? Ah, right. Why didn't it help him do the test? But it comes after he did the test and he obeyed and okay. he did what was right in yeah. the Lord's sight. Good question. I, I don't know. Uh, I'm just trying to think beyond this this scripture. Is that Ooh, a principle? you know, <laughs> I should is, point yeah. out there is time. There's a time difference here. There is a verse that soon afterwards the armies come. So this is not necessarily not exactly necessarily the same day. So this is for a specific purpose. I I think definitely the absence of obedience would have meant that the spirit wouldn't have come upon him. Let's put it that way. So had he not been obedient and followed through and done what he was asked to do, then he would have not remained in the Lord. <laughs> if you want to go back to our John. 15 passage he wouldn't have remained close to the lord and so there would be an assumption there that failure to do that might mean that the spirit would have gone well i can't i want to work in partnership with you but if you don't want to work in partnership with me i'm not going to force myself upon you so this this um partnership arrangement that gideon has where he wants to obey leads to this point where god says now's your time i need a champion who will defeat the enemy and 
bring about victory for God's people. You're the man, Gideon. And that's, I failed to say that before, uh, that the Lord had originally said to him that he, through him, he will, the Lord will use Gideon to destroy the Midianites. Yes. Okay, and then there was the test. Then there was the test. So Gideon has this call on his life. There's the test. Then the Holy Spirit comes. He obeys rather yes. than the Holy Spirit comes. And the God's goal or uh, the true calling on his life we're about to see play out. Yes, this is, this is the point at which he's really called for. Yeah, God's using him at this time to be, a, to be the deliverer for his people. What if he failed that test? Do you think God would still use him? Um, well, that, there is a question, a really good implied question in that. And I think, I have to think that it's probably not quite as, as black and white. It's probably more nuanced than that because I've failed plenty of tests. And if, I, if, I, if God gave up on me every time I failed a test, then I wouldn't be here today. Would <laughs> however <laughs> that's honest. That's, that's yeah. not to say that that's not to say that um while he wouldn't give up on me, that's not to say that I wonder what I might have missed out on because I haven't yeah obeyed him. I understand that. And do you think there might have been a second test? Because as we said before, you've got to learn the lessons over. Yeah. You well, could the whole have read another of one. The test yeah. is really worth researching and exploring in and of itself. Oh, that's another podcast. Yeah. Because, oh, dear. Well, the Bible Project guys talk about the test all the time. It's, it's the leaders nodding to test temptation. And, uh, 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 and Abraham is tested. Adam and Eve are tested. Jesus is tested. We all go through this test. Gideon is tested. So that's a whole theme that's carried through the scriptures that, that God expects that we, those who pass the test will move into a position where God can use them, whether that's testing in the desert or whatever. But I think Gideon's test here was, will you believe me enough to stand up for me among your family and your relatives by pulling down their Asherah poles? And that's his test. And he passed that test. So, and um, his faith grew. And so his faith grew. Could we interpret the Holy Spirit is clothing him as a, a way of understanding that his faith had grown? Yeah, I, I could. It could. I think in this context, the spirit of the Lord clothing Gideon with power is for a specific reason, though. He is, he is spirit empowering Gideon to lead an army that's about to defeat the Midianites, and that's the purpose of why the author of Judges wants you to know that the spirit of the Lord came upon him, just like the spirit of the Lord came upon Samson in the next chapter. The spirit yeah. of the Lord comes upon these people for specific purposes at specific times. And so there was that smaller test. Now the Spirit of the Lord comes on and there's going to be a much bigger test. Much bigger test now. Yes. Yeah. So in I'm going to read to you verses 2 to 4 in chapter 7, actually. We, um, that's the end of chapter 6. So All right, we're moving ahead. We're moving we're ahead. We're moving we're ahead. Keep, keep going, Jeannie. Yeah, this is much quicker than last time. I think so. 2 to 4. The Lord said to Gideon, oh, hang on, give it some context. So there is an army coming for them. And yep. who's that army? The Midianites. Midianites, as we just said. <laughs> Sometimes they I'm so all brain around dead. them. Yeah, the Midianites are all around them. And actually, they're described as being like locusts, aren't yes, they? Yes, that's a picture of a lot of people. Picture, yeah. A lot of people with a lot of uh, too many camels to count, right? Yeah. The camels were like grains well, of sand. They were a nomadic tribe that would just come through the land. Think like a locust plague. The picture of the Midianites here is that literally they don't live anywhere. They just follow around wherever the food is. They would come through the land and like a locust plague would just eat everything in sight. That's why the cattle, Gideon's hiding. And move yep. on. That's why he's hiding. hiding we'll just literally yep. take all the cattle for themselves, eat all the grain and move on to the next spot. Okay. 
So this is scary. This is right at their doorstep. And uh, verse 2, the Lord said to Gideon, you have too many warriors, because Gideon had called an army and a bunch of people had come up, come up to fight. So you have too many warriors with you. If I let all of you fight the Midianites, the Israelites will boast to me that they saved themselves by their own strength. Therefore, tell the people, whoever is timid or afraid may leave this mountain and go home. So 22,000 of them went home. I wonder if Barakat would have been in amongst that crew. Yeah, maybe, maybe, yes. in, in his day, he almost certainly yes. would have been. Leaving only 10,000. Yeah, still a big army. but Still a big army. Yeah. But this isn't enough for God. He nope. says, no, you well, still... Well, too much for God. Yeah, <laughs> not, I mean, he's yeah. going further than yes, this. He yeah. says, you've still got too many. And then there's this test where eventually it results in there are... Uh, th- not a test, rather... Um, well, it is a test. It's who yeah. drinks this, who la- licks who this licks, water, or who, whatever. Who, depending on how these people put, send them to the river and give them a drink, drink up, and yeah. Look for the three hundred that are different. Look for the ones that drink water differently to the rest of them. So then we're left with how many 300. people? Three hundred people versus a multitude. Yeah. So God is really saying, Gideon, this is a faith moment. You have to trust me. Yes. And I'm going to win this. This is a major test moment. A major test moment. Yep. Do you think Gideon would be would have been scared? Uh, yeah, well, he clearly was because just prior to this, we've talked, we we skipped over an entire other test, oh, three tests that he did where he put the Lord to the test. We did skip over the yeah. whole fleece thing. We won't get into it. We don't yeah. have time. It's another. We'll deal with it another time. He asked God to prove that he, he is God the man that, that God is with him three times, and God graciously lets him be put to the test. Instead, the whole concept here is that God's testing Gideon. <laughs> somehow and, yeah. Gideon decides to test God in the middle of all of this. Yeah, but God in his graciousness actually allows does it. Allows that. Yes, that's right. He allows that test because he knows that uh, he knows that Gideon's heart is poised toward him. But the point here you're making is that this is a big test now. He's got 300 against an army that is a multitude of locusts, like army in the, in the valley. Yeah. And Gideon's army doesn't seem to have any weapons. No. No. Well, it, they might have a few, but not much. <laughs> And so he is nervous about it, but God reassures him by saying to him, go down and listen to uh, what they're saying about you. Yep. And sneaks through, down the he hill. sneaks down the hill, yeah. And mm. what happens then? Uh, they, he happens to overhear a conversation. And in this conversation, one guy says, oh, I had this dream that this big round loaf of barley bread came down the mountain and smashed into the Midianite camp. The other guy goes, oh, that has to be Gideon. The Lord has given him our army. So Gideon hears this and he goes, runs back up the hill and he says, God, they've got the confirmation. Let's do it. Let's do it. And here, we, this, this is a slight segue, but is this the spirit of God giving them that dream? And because we have there's stories like this where the other players in the story, not, not our main character, are given dreams that either confirm God's story oh, or God's moment. Is this the spirit of God on these guys? Well, I think the spirit of God is using this story using this encounter to encourage Gideon yes and God will do that for us too he will speak to us through other people I think it's a, it's a valid principle that we should look out for look for confirmation of uh, of things in in other people is totally valid other people who aren't necessarily believers maybe not even even believers yeah I think God will use anything he won't, he won't waste anything for those whose hearts are poised toward him and dreams that others have too. Possibly, yeah. Well, that's what seems to happen in this situation. Um, that somehow that dream seems to be for Gideon. At least the narrative wants you to think of it as written for Gideon. Hmm. Yeah. And so, I- I- reading on in the story, the uh, 
Gideon is reassured. And then what's the first thing that he does? First thing he does is he gets his guys together and says, right, we're going to break up. No, Pastor Rowan, that's not the first thing that he does. He He gets down on his knees and he worships. Oh, there you go. I skipped over that. (laughs) Thank you. And then he gets his people together. And people say, I know the Bible back to back. No, I don't. I didn't. I missed that. I missed that. You missed that. I missed that. Yes, so he worships the Lord. He worships. We didn't worship God before, I don't think, but he He, he, he hears this confirmation. He hears this and he he gets down on his knees and he believes that, yes, we're going to win this battle. And he gets his men together and they run down with no weapons but trumpets. They have trumpets? Trumpets are a standard military issue in those days. They had to be able to use trumpets to call people together to gather certain trumpets would be their way of uh, that was their communication tool on the battlefield trumpets trumpets yeah so certain blows of the trumpet would indicate certain movements or logistical moves or gather here and all that kind of stuff so yeah they haven't got phones or they haven't got you know ipads so that trumpet was their form of military communication Okay, but they're not expecting to kill people with the no, trumpets. No, they're not going to bash them over the head <laughs> with bash trumpets. Them. <laughs> so no. they go down with these trumpets and uh, fire. Uh, so they have the picture, you, they're in the valley, the Midianites are in the valley. He spreads the 300 out around the mountaintops in the dark, gives them uh, torches and trumpets, and he says, spread yourselves out, blow the trumpets and smash your torches and light the place up. So if you're in the valley, imagine it's dark, you're in the valley and you look up and all around the top of the mountain you see flames and light and trumpets blowing. It's going to be pretty scary. Well, it was scary for them because they started killing each other, right? right. They're the freaking out, literally They're started totally freaking out. freaking out. What is going on? They're killing each other and then they run away. Yes, they run away. And so the battle's won. Yes, the battle's won. The battle's won. Gideon has won this army battle. Gideon's he's army, battle. he's won this battle. Uh, this is, uh, so I'm going to state that. He has won the battle. Yep. God told him he would win the battle. Yet here, this isn't the end of the chapter. The chapter continues on and they go out and they go and capture and kill everybody. They chase them down. So my question is, God told them they would win the battle. Did God then tell them to run out and kill everybody who were basically ah, surrendering. Okay. okay. And at what point should we realize that this is now not necessarily what God has said? This is uh, human lust. What has lust and power and, and that taken over here? Because if I read this, I'm reading it like, wow, God wins the battle and then he gets them to do this. But did he? Did God really get them to do that? I think I asked the same question in like 20 different ways yes, then. Yes, I did. I hear what you're saying. I'm just looking at what God said back in Judges 4. Judges what did, 4? What did he promise Gideon? Uh, what did he, you said he, ba- he promised them they wouldn't win the battle. So we go back and see. In Judges 6. Judges 6. Sorry, I haven't got my glasses on. Judges 6. I'm not going to make Judges Oh, 4. you will destroy the Midianites. Okay. You will destroy the Midianites as if you were fighting against one man. So could it be? based on what we've just said previously about judgment and all that sort of stuff, that, that, that a battle win, there's a difference between winning a battle and winning a war. Lots of, I- even in modern warfare, you can win a battle and lose the war. So imagine if they had all run away, they would have all come back again. So maybe to destroy them meant to completely render them powerless, to be able to come back and do the same thing again. So I should, s- but they had already gotten their weapons it says they pick up their weapons mm-hmm. and they go chasing them yep so god d- 
didn't use weapons to kill them. They yep. used the weapons on themselves, but now they have picked up the weapons, yep. gone after them. Gone after them. Should they have gone after them? Should, yes. Well, our Christian worldview head would definitely say no. <laughs> um, and your question is, was this lust, bloodlust, blood or lust. something else? Or is this God? Is this God? I, or is this Jewish history? I think it's probably Jewish history. Um, I'm not saying that they wouldn't have understood that they had to, had to defeat the enemy in order to render them powerless. This actually fits with a, a common question in, say, for Joshua, when Joshua was told to go into the land, it, it'll use very exhaustive language, like they completely obliterated the city and left not a single person alive in the city and all that kind of stuff, right? You see that language used. And if you read that literal value, at, at literal face value, it seems to be saying that's exactly what happened. However... Um, modern, sorry, as modern research has been done into ancient history through archaeology and, and uh, you know, through ancient literary uh, science and te uh, textual criticism, we know that that whole language of completely obliterate is actually a figurative language that was very common in the ancient Near East that would be used across all people groups. When they said that, it basically meant they rendered the, uh, the nation powerless to fight back. It didn't mean that they always killed everybody and brought you know, complete annihilation to a people group. It was not full ethnic cleansing. It wasn't in Joshua's time um, because you see language often about that and then you see reference in Judges to some of those tribe, tribes still living and existing. So there must have been a sense in which they didn't completely obliterate them. I think this could be the same. They may not have gone and wiped out the entire Midianites, but, but maybe they felt that the Midianites running away was not enough. They needed, even though they had their weapons, maybe they needed to do more. I, I don't know. I'm no expert <laughs> on that story. But it would not surprise me if there was bloodlust. I think that's where you're going. It wouldn't yeah. surprise me at all. It is confusing if you just pick up this book and read that and you then you it's easy to think, wow, God then did tell them to go, did go want them to go down. to this, but he doesn't. Uh, I think there is much of a human element here yeah. in this story. And the only thing I can sort of compare it to in our more modern times is when... Uh, at the end of World War Two, we didn't just end there. And I think rightly so, we didn't end there. We then went after... Uh, um, like Nuremberg? Nuremberg trials. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So we went after them. We wanted justice. Yes. And so do you think Gideon and his army, they still wanted justice for all the things the that they had done? I think that might be the case, is that their justice was, a was actually... They didn't, they didn't... Justice wasn't putting people in prison. Justice was execution. So that's their version of justice and this so. is our version of justice. Yeah. So and our version of justice is deeply rooted in Judeo-Christian ethic, 21st century ethic, which has come out, been informed by Jesus' teaching. So yes, we have a more nuanced view of justice that they didn't have. And they didn't have the ability to imprison people for life and all that kind of stuff. So it would make sense that in that context that, that yeah, annihilation was their, was their form of justice. I don't like it but we've got to put ourselves in that mindset. It was the same in the Middle Ages. So, it, so this is, you know, 1400 BC, but fast forward 1500, BC, 1500 AD. So fast forward 3,000 years, this is still the worldview. And we have the benefit, speaking of the Nuremberg trials, we have the benefit of hearing the voices of the victims yeah. and crying out for justice. But when we read Judges 6 and 7, we don't hear the victims, we don't hear their voices, but we should still assume that there were broken-hearted people, yeah. there were people downtrodden, there were people who had very criminal things yes. done against them. Very much so. This was, this was the way the world was in that day. Yep. So nation would rise against nation.
Mm. And sadly, we still do. Um, st- sadly, we still have that. Yeah. Well, that's slightly depressing. <laughs> <laughs> depressing. Well, but it's, it's sobering, definitely. It is sobering. Yeah. And, but essentially, we are the same people. We're still, we want justice. We still wrestle with those issues. And, and wanting justice is not necessarily a bad thing. To not want justice would mean, it just wouldn't make sense. There's something innately in us that wants to put the world right for most of us. And God is deeply just and will bring about ultimate justice. I think Jesus would say, don't take justice into your own hands, leave it for God. He certainly does. Yes, I think we're actually going to read that or maybe we? we have read that. Okay. Well, maybe I've just been reading that in my own readings. <laughs> I don't know. I get confused. But uh, do you have anything else to say on Judges 7? No, I'm happy to move on. All Where right. are we going now? We're going to Judges 13 and 14. Here in Judges 13 and 14, uh, Israel is again under a different group of conquerors this time. Uh, it's been 40 years under the hands of the Philistines. Yep. Who are they? Philistines were a, sea, were a people that uh, lived on the co- started on the coast. They were called the Sea Peoples by the, by the Egyptians. Most likely came from, uh, well, ancient, ancient his- scholars are still divided about who they were, but there's a group of people called the Sea Peoples. These guys, the Phoenicians who live north of here, who probably were the leftovers of the Mycenaeans that came from Greece, from the Greek Greek Isles um, at the Bronze Age collapse. And they, for whatever reason, they still don't know, but ancient Greek culture basically went, regressed for about 400 years before the Classical Age, went right backwards. And it's very likely these people left Greece for some reason, whether it was climate change or whatever, there's a lot of speculation. And they jumped on boats and they went west, went east and ended up on the coast of the land of Israel, Philistines were living on the coast and that's who these people were. And they were in control of the Israelites, and so they're the bad guys. Yeah, they're the bad guys and, and the continue story. to be all the way through much of the history. Yeah. Okay. And w- so in this story now, we're about to read about a character that was very popular uh, when I was at Sunday school. Oh, very popular Sunday school story. Yes. And uh, in my time, I don't know if they still talk about Samson. Yes, yeah, Samson it was. Samson the Strong. Samson the Strong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't think he's a, he, he's not the model Bible character you want to be teaching your kids about, that's for sure. Not the that's way right. he was often taught. No, that's that's right. We are different lenses. We what did you say? The 21st century 21st lenses. 21st century yeah. lens. We think, oh, Going what a hero. Well, hey, God used him, but my goodness, he was a messed up dude. He, wa- he was a messed up dude. Uh, but, you know, that's... You saying that now, I never heard that he was a messed up dude. That's Think about that. When I read this story, yeah. I was always taught Samson was this great yeah, hero, right. but he was a messed up dude. Yeah. And so it pays to read the story yes, because you'll realise he is messed up. He does the wrong thing multiple times. Yeah. Um, he's a womaniser. He's a w- he, yes, he oh, is. Among many other things. Yeah, but we're not reading the story so much of Samson and Delilah. In this chapter, we're talking about Samson's birth or yep. what happens to his parents uh the angel of the lord the lord here again the angel of the lord yep. visits an unnamed man an unnamed wife sorry of a man named manoah if you're interested in the angel of the lord story because we don't have time to go into it here but pick up search through bible project angel of the lord that they did a whole study on it in their god series i think and they in their bible project podcast go into great depth about 
the understanding of the angel of the Lord. It's the best teaching I've ever seen on it. And I will do that. And this is um, this is a, a very much a similar encounter to what Gideon yes. experienced. So the angel of the Lord visits this unnamed woman and tells her she's in the tribe of Dan. And my note to myself is read chapter th- verse 3. Here we go. The angel of the Lord appeared to Manoah's wife and said, even though you've been unable to have children, you will soon become pregnant and give birth to a son. So be careful. You must not drink wine or any other alcoholic drink, nor eat any forbidden food. You will become pregnant and give birth to a son and his hair must never be cut for he will be dedicated to God as a Nazarite or Nazarite, Nazarite, Nazarite from birth. And he will begin to rescue Israel from the Philistines. What's a Nazarite? Nazarite. Nazarite was um, a a dedicatory person, a person that went through a certain vow of dedication. I think uh, it might be. Let's see if it mentions it anywhere in the cross references. Um, no, not in my Bible. It doesn't mention it. Um, it was. I'm just trying to think if there was a direct reference to it in in um, in the in the Torah. And I'm going to say yes, even though there isn't cross-referenced there. I think it was a practice that was um, in the Torah um, that they would have a period of time where if they wanted to take a certain vow, they would not cut their hair and they would not drink any alcohol for a period of time while they were uh, making this vow to set themselves aside for God. In this context, Samson starts that way and the intention is that that's how he'll live in his, his, his entire life. So, and... The Nazarites were known, like this wasn't just a one-off thing. This yeah, is a group of people. You can check it out in Numbers 6, 1 to 26. Oh, you, Numbers 6, 1 to 21. Yeah, I just didn't want to tell you I had oh, it because it made me sound You're smarter organized. than you. I was just going to ask ChatGPT <laughs> what the Nazarite vow was. Oh, no, do that. Yeah, I don't <laughs> – I only have the verses. I don't have what it's it not says. letting me in, so there you go. We're going to have to wait. GPT oh, still sometimes doesn't let you in. So well, I understand, so yeah, yeah, they're dedicated to the Lord. Yep. They dedicate their lives to the Lord. So essentially when she is having the, going to have this baby, she, the baby, she is taking the vow on and Samson is meant to take this vow and on. And the implication is that Samson would take it on too, yes. But the never cut your hair thing wasn't unique to Samson because all of these people, the yes, Nazarites, people do were doing that. Would would not cut their hair, that's correct, yeah. But what was unique to Samson later on was the strength that he had. Yeah. The Nazarites weren't known to be a strong group There's of no people. There's no reference to no, that, that in okay. that thing, yeah. All right. Yeah. So it's worth mentioning when we see Nazarite there. We Nazarite, it's sorry. Think, it's, very, it's very easy to think Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth. There's Just because of Nazarite vow, don't all, uh, there probably is a link grammatically, but I don't think you should be thinking about people from the town of Nazareth. That's not the, that's not the implication there. It's just worth mentioning because I have had people... Assume that that's a link. All right, I didn't didn't think that, you didn't but think <laughs> that, <yep. laughs> no. So they are told they're going to have this son, and they uh, ask the angel of the Lord to a meal again. Is it a meal or to come and to uh, come and bless to, to yep. come and tell? Yeah. At this point, they also um, believe they've seen the face of the Lord, and they sort of throw themselves on the floor and think they're going to die. Yep. So it's a very Sa- very similar story. You're supposed to be thinking the two stories, you know, simultaneously, definitely. And here, he, but the angel of the Lord here, uh, they ask what his name, what his name is, and the angel of the Lord replies, "It's too wonderful, wonderful for you to understand." Why did they ask the name? name Why did they ask his name? So yeah. we mentioned before about how seeing the face of the Lord. I said that's probably loaded up in ancient history at the time around the understanding that if you see the face of the deity, that somehow you would die. 
in a similar way, there's a, there's a, a belief here that, um, that they could bend the pagans' will, the, sorry, the, the, the pagans who worshipped other gods could bend that god's will to their, to their desires. That somehow the god was there to serve them in that sense. And that came from this understanding that if I could know the name of the god, then I could um, inca- launch an incantation which would invoke that god to, do, to, to operate and fight on my behalf. So it's an invocation thing. To know the name of the god was to be able to call on that god to fight for me. And so that's really what's going on here is that they, these guys don't have it all figured out and they just think, hey, yeah, we want you. You, you look like a good God. What's your name? I think that's the implication uh, that they're after the name of God for that reason. And God's basically saying, it's not about that. I, I, you don't serve, I don't serve you, you serve me. So there are lots of gods still in this community. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of idol worship You've things got to going on. The book of Judges, it's full of syncretism. It's like the Gideon story. They're in the middle of worshipping God, but they've twisted it with worshipping Asherah and Baal. They're still, yeah, blending everything together. Very much like you would see in Africa today. Lots of Christians in Africa, uh, you know, could be worshipping in a church on a Sunday and then calling the witch doctor for their sick kid on a Monday and thinking it's perfectly normal to do that because they don't fully grasp what it means to to worship the Lord and serve him only. But then she takes a vow, essentially, to this God. And Samson is under this vow. Yes. And that's important for the entire story. Yeah, the, he, he's growing vow. up knowing that yeah. he's under this vow. Can't cut his hair. And yeah. yeah. And then in 24, we learn when her son was born, she named him Samson. And the Lord blessed him as he grew up. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir him while he lived Mahanadan. in these areas. In Mahanadan. What do you think that meant? And the spirit of the Lord began to stir him. Stir him how? What? Why? How? What? what? <laughs> the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him. Well, let's put it in its context. The beginning of the chapter talks about how judges, how Samson would begin the deliverance from the Philistines. So I think there's a stirring happening inside him towards prompting him to do what he's called to do, which is to begin the deliverance. Um, from the Philistines. I would assume that's what it's meaning. It's the beginning of processes of him coming to an awareness of that. Could it actually mean in chapter 14 when Samson, he's amongst the Philistines, or Philistines, how do you say it? Ah, uh, Philistines. Whatever. Philistines, yeah. <laughs> and he's tomato, a, tomato. even though the law of the time was not to take a foreign wife, yep. uh, he says, I want this pagan Philistine to be my wife. And... Uh, Samson's father agrees to go and get her. And then in verse 4, when it says, this is confusing to me, because his father and mother didn't realise the Lord was at work in this. Mm. To begin the deliverance. To begin creating an opportunity to work against the Philistines who ruled over Israel. So the Spirit stirred him to want to marry a Philistine, which was against the law. Yeah, you're getting deep. Uh, yeah, because I'm not they saying it's a contradiction. I'm just saying it's... Well, well it is. It's, tr- it's strange. It's certainly a contradiction because on one hand, it seems like the law is saying don't, don't intermarry. On the other hand, the Spirit of the Lord seems to be saying to Samson, intermarry. So there should be... There should, that should do exactly what it's done for you. That should question. You should question that and go, that doesn't make sense. Now, what I would do with that is dig and research and study because that is... When, when I see an apparent contradiction like that, don't freak out. That's actually an in- invitation into deeper study. There's a nugget of truth 
that he'd be buried under the ground there that will enlighten that, that contradiction. And I could give a, a basic thought as to what that might be, but I think I would be doing a disservice because I wouldn't feel like I'd done my own research enough. So if I was studying this and I saw that, that question come up to me, Jeannie, I'd go digging. I'd, I'd start with Googling it. Why? Start there. Why did why this apparent contradiction? These days you could start with GPT. You could ask that question of GPT and it would give you some thoughts. Don't, don't just settle on those thoughts, but then use those as stimulating thoughts to go and study scriptures and study it and look at it in more depth. I think that's a valid question that we have some tools to research and dig into. I did look at a commentary You've for this. You've obviously done this, a commentary. Yeah. That's a good place to start too. Yeah, and it said that Samson heart, Samson's heart was right towards the Lord. And so did it give a reason why it said Samson's No, it heart? didn't. It was con- so I think see, maybe I the commentary was as confused I as I am. What was that, what was that commentary? Do, do you know what it was? Uh, no, I have it in my bag. No. Um, <laughs> I, I think to, it's making an assumption that Samson's heart was right towards the Lord. I think he, he had some poise toward God. But I think what we need to realise is that in the middle of his, just because he was poised toward God didn't mean he understood it all. He's still a product of his culture. He, he's still... Um, d- deeply misogynistic man. He um, is a very clearly a very angry man. We see that played out in his. He, he has a very little self control in his world, um, his his character. So to say that his heart was right toward the Lord, would be, I think it's a bit of a stretch. Myself, I think it's a stretch, and I think is the the, his, the people who wrote who did write Judges, by the way. Um, I don't know. I, d- I don't know. Um, I know that it would have been put together in its final format at the Second Temple Literature time, but I'm not sure who was the writer of Judges. I imagine in his first context, it was probably put together in the times of the early kings, so probably in the, k- the kings of Israel and Judah. That would be my best guess. I have this thought in my mind. It's forming. It's taking a while. <laughs> That's okay. My cogs go slow. But is this an example, or could we think of this as something where we're looking, the reader or the historian is looking for God using this moment as an example. Oh, wait, wait, wait. What am I saying? Sorry if you're listening to me getting confused. What I'm trying to say is, are we looking for God using the person, making the per- not making the person, but the person is doing something out of a belief that they're doing the right thing, rather than looking at the story as an example of God using the mistakes that we make for his good purpose. Yes, I think the latter. I think I'm much more comfortable. Did Once that make sense? It did. Oh, so thank oh, goodness. I think, well, I think, here, here's what I think I heard you say. <laughs> I think what I heard you say was, do, are we to assume that God using Samson was 100% reliant upon Samson's purity and 100% reliant upon his perfect character? Or could it be that later down the track after the story has been told and passed down through generation to generation for a couple of hundred years and in the times of the, assuming it's the times of the kings that the stories are put together, then them reflecting back on these stories and looking back and going, there's evidence there that God was working in through, in Samson's story, in the judge's story, despite their, despite his character flaws, despite the nation's constant disobedience, God was still working. And that's the story that they're trying to tell I th- is that what you? Is that yes, yeah. that is exactly. You, you should have just said that, and no, in the first said, place, I think you actually said it better. I think that's. <laughs> no. I think that's a valid form. And I would. I, I want to say. I would not say. 
100% empirically that the first option isn't true. It's just that I was raised to think that first option was the only truth, that it must be literal, it must be, it was, it's, you know, Samson's character must have been perfect or God wouldn't have worked through him. I am much more comfortable with the messiness and the nuance. As I've matured in my life, I've realised how messy I am, and yet God still works with me. And I think God still graciously reaches out to us despite our messes. Because Samson's one messed up dude, as I've already said, and yet God still worked in and through his story to bring about his purpose. The book of Judges shows us that. If there's anything we learn from the book of Judges, it's how messed up those people were and how faithful God is in the middle of it. Yes, and this, this chapter really is one of those ones where you have to sit and think about. And that's what I like about it. Yeah. You've got to dig and, uh, and wrestle with it. And wrestle with it. Particularly because when we know the, the whole story uh, is he ends up, he, he goes and gets married. And uh, on the way to the ceremony, no, to meet the bride, he goes and he kills a lion. Yep. And then uh, years a year later when he goes back to get married, because it's about a year-long uh, engagement, yep, engagement period, period, he then finds this carcass, uh, this lion's carcass. And here he touches the carcass. And as Which a Nazarite, he's not, a, he's not no, allowed to go he's near broken. dead things. No, exactly. So he, straight away you think there's a character flaw here. He breaks yep. that law and then he causes his parents to break that vow by giving them the food honey. from the honey. Yep. And then at the wedding, he's 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 so arrogant. Oh, he's so full of himself, this dude. <laughs> he's, yeah, this is an example of not what to be. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. He, he uh, says if you can get this riddle, which he makes up. Um, out of the eater, something out of the to eat, something, something to do with the honey. Strong, yes. Something sweet. Then you yep. owe me this amount of money. 30 sets of clothes. 30 sets of clothes. And if you do get it, then I will give you 30 sets of clothes. Now, his wife cries and uh, gets it out of him, whinges and yep. gets it out of him. After a week, she gets it out of him. Gets it out of him. And he is forced to then go and find these 30 clothes. And here in uh, verse 14, there's another confronting part. Verse, four, yeah, verse 14. No, that's the wrong chapter. Judges 14, 14. Judges 14, 14. This is, see, you look on your thing. I've got my paper one. Yeah, it's, I just swipe it with my finger on my iPad. That's not what it is. Judge 19. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Judges 14, 19. came powerfully upon him, and he went down to the town and killed 30 men, took their belongings, and gave their clothing to the men who had solved his riddle. But Samson was furious about what had happened, and he went back home to live with his father and mother. So his wife was given in marriage to the best man. What a strange story. This is really the Bible way. This is the Bible. What? what? <laughs> like, did the spirit of, if the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, so he killed 30 men so he could get sets of clothing, which started with an arrogant boast in the first place, how could that be the Spirit of the Lord come upon him? Exactly. Good question. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I think if we look at what God is doing, God is trying to bring deliverance to his people from um, an oppressive people, the Philistines. And so... God is even willing to use Samson's mess to fulfill an ultimate purpose. That's about as deep as I think we, I'm prepared to go without more study. Even though Samson is arrogant, boastful, breaking the Nazarite vow, um, something inside him is at least partially poised toward God in some way and, and God is prepared to work with that mess to bring about his fr freedom for his people. Here's another question. Do you think Samson was the best of the worst 
Uh, Are I they all bad and he's the best that God could get? I don't know. That wouldn't be surprising. Um, They're all oh, bad. Well, it's I mean, it's pretty bad. So easy, simple I'd way to, to put I'd it. Have, I'd be hopeful that surely there was someone who was a better character than Samson. But um, whether or not he was the best of the best, it's, it paints a picture, best of the worst, it paints a picture of a very dark time in Israel's history. Yeah, which I keep coming back to. That is the time of Judges. It's, it's a messed up time. So on that dark note, let's end Judges. <laughs> Good, because it gets darker than this as we head yeah. towards those last few chapters in Judges. My goodness. And we'll skip back to, uh, we'll, we'll not skip, but we'll go on to the New Testament Great. now. We're going to start off with John 16. We're in the Gospel of John again, back in this famous discourse that Jesus gives right before he goes to the cross. And we'll try and try and stay on point, won't we? Try and stay on point. Have we been talking a while? I don't know because I'm having a great time. time, I know, but you've got to get your kids from (laughs) school. That's the problem. Oh, yes. Oh, dear. All right. Okay. Here we go. John 16. Jesus. John 16? Yeah, so this is just after what we've talked about in the previous podcast, Jesus, the true vine and everything. And he says, I've told you these things so that you won't abandon your faith. I'm not meant to read that. That's all right. Well, that's a good summary into why he's (laughs) told them. We did talk about that. He's encouraging them. Yeah, he's encouraging them. I say I'm not meant to read it because that was not my note to myself. Sure. Let's go from uh, John 5, 16.5. Yep. But now I'm going away to the one who sent me and not one of you is asking where I am going. Instead, you grieve because of what I've told you. But in fact, it's best for you that I go away because if I don't, the advocate won't come. If I do go away, then I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming There's judgment. There's convictor word. There's the convictor. About. We've been yep. spending all this time talking, getting to it. And the world's sin is that it refuses to believe in me. I'm going to stop there. Sure. The world's sin is that it refuses to believe in me. You this is what I, this I made that point yeah. before. When I go back and I read uh, Genesis 1, I see that it is the sin of self. Yes. That we choose ourselves before or we reject God and we choose yeah. ourselves. Is this the true sin? Not that it's... No, maybe that it is bigger than everything. It's that we have all sinned because we've all put ourselves before ah, God. We yes, have the world's is sin the is that it refuses to believe in me. I reckon you've hit the nail on the head there. So all the other sins that we commit ultimately come out of a refusal to trust God and, uh, and his way for our lives and define what we think is right for us. That is the picture of Genesis 3. No doubt about it. When they, when they eat from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they are saying, I don't trust that God is good. I don't trust that what God says is right. I, am going to th- I think I can do better with my life than God can do with my life. I can get wisdom for myself, that wisdom theme that's ra- wound all the way through Scripture. And yes, when Jesus says the world's sin is that it failed to believe in me, if he's, claiming, if he's God and he's claiming to be God, then a failure to believe in Jesus' way is a failure to believe in God. And that is ultimately the sin. That is what sin is, first and foremost. So when people say, 
oh, I'm a good person, you know, I haven't killed anybody, I haven't left my husband, yeah. I haven't sure. done all this. And we can say, yeah, sure, that's a good person. But ultimately, you've put yourself before God and you've rejected Jesus. Yeah. So we're all guilty of that. Yeah, Pastor Phil Pringle has a good way of putting it. He goes, you might say you're a good person. He goes, it's good that you're a good person. Yeah. You know, it's not that. We try to be. Yeah, yeah it's exactly. So it's not, it's not that we shouldn't. It can become a very black and white and, and belittle the fact that someone's a good person. You know, no, we want people to be good people. Good people build a good society. There's no doubt about that. That's but what we're aiming for. Yes. And, and there's nothing wrong with it. That's part of our conscience that God has given all human beings regardless. It's not bad. It's just that we're incapable of being ultimately good enough. We're incapable of ultimately living a life that is 100% selfless, that honours others above ourselves, prefers others above ourselves. At some point, our human nature, no matter how good we try to be, will become selfish. That is the sin, that it's dark. If you're honest, no matter how honest we are, we've all got that darkness inside of us. That's what Jesus came to do battle with and to give, empower us to trust him over ourselves, over our own good works. And once we have that relationship where we trust him, then the power of sin that he's talking about here has no hold on us. Through the death and the resurrection of Christ, he has defeated that power of sin. And if we are in him, if we are in relationship with him, if we remain close to him, then sin, sin's power has no hold on us. And we are capable by his grace of living that perfect selfless life. And here's the nuance, even though we also know that we'll never do it 100%. <laughs> but we are capable. There is, we, sh we can aspire toward that and we are being transformed into more of that image as followers of Christ. Oh, I think that's just the end of everything now. We can stop talking. <laughs> <laughs> that's the message. That's the point. Uh, but I should state that Jesus is saying this, uh, speaking to his disciples here shortly before he is betrayed. Right. Yes, right before he's betrayed. Yep. And here, verse 12, it's so, so fascinating to me because he says, there is so much more I want to tell you, but you can't bear it now. Is that implying that there is more to learn through the Holy Spirit? It's going to yep. teach us something through maybe somebody else who's going to figure out things. Yep. And, it, and the things that we need to know about Jesus are not necessarily all in the scriptures before it. Ah, Okay. When the spirit of truth comes, it goes on and says, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own, but will tell you what he has heard, for he will tell you about the future. So the question was, does that mean that God will speak beyond the scriptures? The scriptures, that yes, at this point. Yes and no. <laughs> what? What do I, you mean? Well, I've known plenty of people who would claim to have the spirit of God speaking through them, but it's heresy. It's, it's doctrinally unsound. So... I'd say that's the no bit. but And God has revealed himself in the scriptures, in the canon of scripture that we have. God has revealed everything we need to know about him. But your question was, is there more to know about him? I would say, yes, by the Spirit illuminating our hearts, reflecting back on the scripture, we can learn about God. But we need to make sure that we're not adding stuff that isn't already in there about God or about his character or about Jesus. Does that make it makes sense? sense? Yeah. Yeah. I ask it because I'm also wondering, could Jesus here be alluding to Paul, the Apostle Paul, who is going to uncover a mystery of the scriptures? Could Jesus be alluding to that? There's much um, more. <laughs> so for Jesus to be alluding to that, he would have to have advanced prophetic knowledge that there was going to be a guy called Paul who would come along and do that. 
Um, so would it be a direct reference to that? It's not beyond the scope of possibility, although that does seem to be not the way Jesus worked. Um, or am I just looking for my own answers here? And sometimes should we not do that? Should we sometimes not read it, wanting it to answer a direct question I that we're asking? I think we should asking? read it a bit more, yeah, a bit more loosely than that. He's saying, hey, there's a whole lot more, but right now you're grieving. Right now what I've told you is pretty hard to swallow. There's a lot more to learn. It's not going to end with me going, you know, dying and being raised to life again. I'm going to send the spirit of truth. I'm going to send the advocate to you. And, he, and, he's, not, and he's saying he's going to come, the spirit's going to come, and he's going to guide you into more truth. He's going to illuminate. The spirit will illuminate more truth to you. Um, the spirit won't speak on his own, but will tell you what he's heard. There's this illumination of truth that will come from the Spirit progressively. Was it the Apostle Paul? Possibly. Was it all the other apostles? Possibly. Was it Martin Luther? Possibly. Was it St. Augustine? Possibly. You know, was it all these great men and women of faith throughout church history? I think, yeah. With C.S. Lewis, we were just before we were recording, I was chatting with Pastor Jeff about C.S. Lewis. I mean, incredible insight that man had, inspired by the inspired by the Spirit. And if the Holy Spirit is still speaking, teaching us things, should we, and what you said before about somebody said something in the Holy Spirit and you knew it was really wrong with you? Uh, If someone's claimed something by the Spirit, but it contradicts the Scripture. Contradicts, yeah. And so it it shouldn't contradict, but it should also sort of illuminate Jesus. Yes, we should be able to see Jesus in that. And if the Jesus we see represented in someone's revelation fits the Jesus we see represented in Scripture, we're, we're pro- probably on pretty good grounds. All right. I'm going to leave that there for another sure. podcast because yeah. there's a lot to there do with that. Yeah, yeah. So and here Jesus is talking about uh, his death and resurrection and he tells them that their sorrow will be turned to joy. Interesting, again, he's not talking about his own pain and sorrow he's no. about to go through. He's, he's talking about he's them. caring for them. He's putting it all on them, caring about them, loving them. Would he, would he be worried about them? I don't think he's worried because I think he he knows. He wants to give them words, but he knows that he's called them. And other than Judas, um, he, he we read in Luke's gospel probably or one of the synoptic gospels about Peter. He says to Peter, uh, you're going to deny me three times, but when you turn back, strengthen your other brothers. So, is that, or is that in John's gospel? I think that's in Peter's gospel. Uh, in, in, sorry, in the synoptic gospels. But I don't think he's worried about them. I think he knows that the word he's planted in them will bear fruit. In, in John 17, we're about to read, I assume, he says, he actually says, I have, um, you know, I have planted my seed in them. I've planted your word in them, Lord, or something like that. I just want to read this part. So verse 22, so you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, then you will rejoice and no one can rob you of that joy. At that time, you won't need to ask me anything. I tell you the truth and you will ask the Father directly and he will grant your request because you use my name. You haven't done this before. Asking my name, ask using my name, sorry, and you will receive and you will have abundant joy. Is Jesus equating himself to God here? Yeah. yeah. The thought of praying in the name of anyone other than Yahweh would have been uh, quite uh, challenging for (laughs) Most blasphemous for a Jew. Yeah, so and he's only saying this to the disciples. Imagine if he said this in the, fa- the yeah, well, they would have stoned him. They would have tried <laughs> to stone him like some of the other things he said. Yeah, yeah, but this is co- this is quite damning yeah. in that sense. Yeah. 
This is an introduction to something to pray in my, pray name. in my name. He's yeah. standing there in as the past, a human. You not use my name, but now I'm telling you, use my name. Use my name. Yeah, yeah. And praying in someone's name, it has the connotation of using the name. Like if a if a um, if a foreign uh, diplomat or ambassador is working in a foreign land, they are operating in the name of that country. So if the Australian diplomats to the United States. They are operating in the name of this Australia. They speak on behalf of Australia. That's the concept of what it means to use someone's name in prayer, that you're actually speaking on behalf of Jesus. So when, when we're praying about things, we are speaking on behalf of, we are representing Jesus. That's pretty powerful. And we're representing God. Now you will pray in my name. Wow. Yeah. And I've told you all this so you may have peace in me. Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. There's so much in this. Yeah. I am God. I am overcoming the world. You're still going to have pain and sorrow, but you should have this joy that's never going to be taken from you. Yeah. yeah. A, a lot of the times I, I read and I'm, I'm looking to discover who Jesus is, like to find out his character. And here he's so deeply encouraging. Yeah, look, that's a great character study of Jesus. I love the way you said that. Find the character of Jesus, the character of the Lord as he reveals himself in Scripture. And this is an example of it. He is about to go to the cross. He is about to endure unspeakable pain, unspeakable sorrow. And yet his love compels him to still make sure that he gives the disciples everything he possibly can give them before he goes. And, it, and it's a huge example of God as well. Yes. I am, he's saying, pray my name, I am God. I, we, love you. Yes. Yep. It's quite shocking, really, it's these claims. Revolutionary thinking. Revolutionary. <laughs> this man is here and yeah. and he's about, I'm looking after you, I'm thinking of you. And then he actually takes this even further in, in chapter 17. chapter 17 after saying these things he looks up to heaven where and he prays it's different to the way i pray or what you pray we look down we close our eyes yeah but he he's up. he looks jews up. Looked up jews looked up yeah should we look up when we pray we probably should yeah. yeah the jews would look up raise their hands and say blessed are you lord god creator of heaven and earth that gives us fruit of the vine or gives us bread from the ground that was a, a thankfulness yeah a thankfulness and he prays for himself, for the disciples, and for us fellow believers. Yes. In the hour before he's, or maybe an hour before he's taken, he's betrayed. He's thinking of the world. He's yep. thinking of us. Yep. He's, he's selfless. My prayer is not just for these ones. It's for all who will believe in me after them, all the way through to 2023. 23. And beyond. And he declares that this is the way to have eternal life, is to know you, God, but also know no, Jesus, Jesus Christ. The one you these are huge claims. Yeah, these are massive claims. And this is the stuff that the church fathers, I know use that term, that's the term terminology, the church fathers, but meaning the, the leaders of the church in the early centuries. These are the sorts of scriptures that were used to debate the nature and of the divinity of Jesus. They looked at these kind of claims and they said, even though it might not say Jesus is God in those words, it's there 
written in black and white implied so deeply that it's impossible to think that Jesus isn't making claims here about his divinity and his oneness with the, with the Father as, as God. But then he also speaks of such heavenly things that we can't quite understand. Right. Uh, which I, I think again points to him, his divinity. Yep. And oh, I've lost my thought. There's so much going on uh, in my, or maybe there's <laughs> nothing going on in my brain. <laughs> Sorry, when there's that lots going on, way. it's spinning in circles, I know. Yeah. Yes. It, he, well, where am I? Ron, where, you say something, Ron, while I've got uh, my mind. You, you keep looking, Jeannie. <laughs> Just talk amongst yourselves out there in <laughs> podcast world while we. <laughs> Think about where we're up to. It's all good. We'll edit. We'll cut it back and click it. It'll just be like that. Even if she's sitting here for five minutes thinking of a thought, it'll just be like that. All right. Okay, here. I'm going to go to verse nine. My prayer is not for the world, but for those who have given me because they, you, sorry, for those you have given me because they belong to you. All who are mine belong to you and you have given them to me. So they bring me glory. Are we a gift to God? Are we a gift to God? To Jesus, sorry. Are we a gift to Jesus? From the Father. Yeah. Yeah, that's what it says. The Father has gifted us to the Son. My prayer is not for them, but to those you have given me. Mm. Yep. Why would we be a gift? Wow. Why would we be a gift? I think the gift is redemption. I think the fact that that, G, that, that our, our, you and me and our fellow, our fellow Christians, that we are gifted to Jesus in the sense that Jesus, what Jesus went through worked. That he, we are the fruit of him going to the cross. That he was, he was elevated to the right hand of the Father as a result of his faithful obedience. But the greatest treasure that Jesus has is the fact that it worked. That, that Christians have been snatched from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. In that sense, I think that we are a gift to Jesus. It worked. It was worth it. Jesus could look at us and go, it was worth it. I'm glad I did that. It's a very strange thought. Is it? Do, yeah. you, have a, do you have a different thought? Because that was just came straight out of my thought right no, now. No, no. I mean, it's, oh. not, it's strange that we're a gift. It's just strange that we would be so loved, I suppose. Yeah. When our world is a mess I, and we I should say I'm loading things. up Ephesians language there where it says we are to the praise of his glorious grace. The picture is that Christians are like trophies on Jesus' shelf. They they are we are evidence that Jesus' death and resurrection was worth it. So that's where I'm getting that language from, I think. No, I, I completely understand what you're saying. And in verse 11, I have a sort of another question about this. And he says, now I'm departing from the world. They are staying in this world, but I, have, I am coming to you. Holy Father, you have given me your name. Now protect them by the power of your name so that they will be united just as we were. United so for us to be as united as God and Jesus were. Now earlier if in an, only. if only <laughs> but it, earlier in a podcast you mentioned that God created us for partnership. Yeah. But does this verse sort of imply that the disciples and us are to be in a de deeper relationship with God? Not just in partnership, we're in a deeper relationship with God. Uh, I don't know if I, I think the think the 
the concept, when I say partnership, I'm thinking a very deep relationship with God. I'm thinking Adam and Eve close, walking closely with God, completely in unity and oneness oh, with God. Oh, okay. Oh, I missed that. Because yeah. I, I see partnership as you're working alongside each other. Yeah. But a deeper relationship is that God is, Jesus is within me and we're working not alongside, but we're working together. Yeah. Well, yes. I think what we have available to us now because the spirit of Christ is in us is even deeper than what was lost in the garden. What was lost in the garden was that Adam, the Lord would walk with him. And in this situation, the spirit is in us. So it's it's definitely a deeper level of intimacy than what Adam and Eve were originally intended to have. But it's an instant connection, as yes, we said it's, before. It's like we can life. I mean, instant life. Remain in me. It's like the branch and the vine together. Instant life source connected. Um, we don't have to wait for the vine to connect itself to us, or we don't have to go look into the vine, go to the priest to connect us up. We have instant connection to the life source of God. That's definitely the case. But to me, that partnership invites that level of intimacy. It's like God says, hey, what do you want to do, Rowan? What do you think we should do today? Like he limits himself. The great king of the universe willingly limits himself to invite me into an intimacy with him to go, how would you like to spend your day today? I would love you to spend your day honouring me and worshipping me and fulfilling your purpose for me on the earth. How would you like to do that? Rather than just saying, you will do this, Rowan. <laughs> to me, that's a wonderful invitation. I, and a great responsibility. Mm, you're right. I think um, I love this chapter, chapter 17, because it shows so much about Jesus and yeah. God's heart and the fact that he prays for us. And there's a lot in it. it I really recommend people do go spend some time reading this because we I'm conscious we're we are going out of time. way over time here. So... What am I? What should we? How do we sum up chapter seventeen? How would you chap, sum up this prayer for I, us? I think simple summary of John 17's prayer for us is that it shows, perhaps as much as anywhere else in in uh, John's gospel, it shows Jesus' heart for his children, for his people, for for those he died to save, that the, his depth of love and desire to come close to us, to work with us, to relate to us, is revealed in the prayer of a man who's about to go to the cross and yet desperately is desiring relationship with, with us. That was pretty good. Thank you. <laughs> I think you might be a pastor of a church. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So should we move on to Romans 12? Romans 12. Whoa. Okay. That's where we're going next. So here we are, Romans 12, and in the last, I actually thought we'd come to the last <laughs> last bit of this podcast, but we don't, we still have a, few, a bit to go, but this is, but I do love how we can just sit and talk about this. Sure. So in, in Romans 12, we get an example of what the ho Holy Spirit does, right? Yes. Would you say, yes. would you agree Ro with oh, that? Romans 12 is full of Holy Spirit language. Ro so we are going to. we're in a hurry, we're, <laughs> we're going to have to just we're not, we're, skip over it quickly. So we are going to come back to a full podcast on the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Give me some time to read about it. So we will just sort of not skim over it, but... We'll Maybe ask one question that sticks out to you, Jeannie. One question. I'm oh going to limit you to gosh. one. What's your big question that you get out of Romans 12 that All we right. want to discuss? Well, let me just read the living... The 
opening bit so you know what we're talking about. And it goes like this. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Does the Holy Spirit change the way I think? There's my question. Does the Holy Spirit change the way I think? So if, if we're reading that, that context of those scriptures, then yes, I think that a relationship with the Lord, staying close to him, presenting our lives to him, remaining in him, to use John 14 language, that that level of relationship with God, the Spirit will transform our thinking and we will begin to think more like the Lord, we will begin to think with the wisdom of heaven. We will be able to. We will begin to think with the values of, uh, um, of the kingdom, and we will look more like Him. And we we'll will be more loving, more loving, more fruitful. Love, joy, peace, patience—all the fruit of the spirit. The more we stick close to Him, the more we will look like that. And the less we look like the world around yes. us, because yes. in the last chapter, which we didn't talk about, uh, we are not of this world. Yep. Like Christ, we're not meant to be of this world. We're meant to be separate and look in the world, different. But look different from the look, world. Still live in the world, yep. but look different, behave different, and that way we represent Christ. Yep. And is that the best way to to live our faith? The best way to show people that we're Christians. The best way to draw people into Christianity is to be different. I think. It's, is that right? I think. Yeah. I, I think it's really the only way. The only way. If so you, you don't want me to go out Bible bashing oh, people. See. You uh, want me to be living oh, well, different. I'm not saying we shouldn't preach and declare the word. There's plenty of scriptures that say we should preach the word. I said Bible bashing. <laughs> yeah, Bible bashing. <laughs> say preach. Yeah. yeah, so I think there's a, there's we've got to be aware of what's going to have the fruitfulness. Because Bible bashing carries with it a negative connotation, which is you're battering people and you're not being loving. Well, that's just going to have the opposite effect. If we are to, we should be so loving. By, John says... In those passages where he didn't read this either, but he says in in that whole um, passage that Jesus had at the Last Supper there, or um, when he was when he was praying all those chat the, uh, stuff about us, he, he he says, "By this will all people know that you're my disciples, that you love one another." There's a, there's a desire that his people would be so loving, so different that it would be attractive. It would li- that we, we would live by a different system, different structures different worldviews, and that, that is the transforming of our mind. We used to think this way, used to think selfishly. Now, by sticking close to me, I want to you to start to think, I will empower you to think differently. I will think you will think selflessly, not selfishly. And we should... I'm reading ahead on my notes. I really like what you're saying there and I just I think that a lot of Christians these days we don't look different to the world yeah, around us. Right. We uh behave badly, poorly yeah. towards each other. We get on Twitter and we write stuff yeah. and we do all these things and so it's good to actually read this and Romans twelve, there's a lot of practicalities in here on how to yeah, I think in, live yeah, if you a look life. at it, I think this version calls it a living sacrifice to God, but I think if I check I think pretty sure it's the NIV version. It's, I think it's you know, one of the other versions, uh, I think it might be the New King James, actually says uh, how, how to, so it says in Romans 12 verse 9, behave like a Christian. 
is the heading that, that, that oh, you really? think James has used, behave like a Christian. <laughs> so it's an incredibly practical chapter, Romans 12, about what it looks like to live like a Christian. It is practical. It's, it's yes. just a whole lot of basic Paul going, you want to know what a Christian looks like who thinks differently? Here's it. Don't just pretend to love others, really love them. Cling to, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. It's, it's a practical, um, it's practical guidelines for Christian living. It also talks about having different measures of faith. Measures of faith. Yep. Um, what verse is that? Oh, it's in there. Just look it up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what is a measure of faith? Yeah, what is, is it different for every, each person? Yeah, I, I think that it is. But I think what we, the question is not whether or not I've got more faith than you. It's what I do with what faith I've been given. That principle seems to be the case. The one who has been given much, much more will be expected. So whether you find yourself with a large amount of faith or a small amount of faith or a large amount of resource or a small amount of resource, um, God is not egalitarian in that sense. He's not, uh, try, he's not into everybody having everything the same. He's into diversity. But what he is into is believers who will be good stewards of whatever they have been given. A measure of faith, small measure of faith, large measure of faith. They'll be faithful with whatever they've been entrusted with. Can you increase your measure of faith? Yeah, so the, Jesus said, the disciple said to Jesus, increase our faith. He goes, hey, all you need is a faith as small as a mustard seed. And you can say to the mountain, be moved. So yes, I think you can stretch your faith. You can grow your faith through, through the stretching, through the praying, through going through a crisis and seeing God move stretches your faith to believe for greater things. King David able to say to Saul, the reason I can take on Goliath is because I fought a lion and I fought a bear and now I know that I can fight a lion, I can fight a bear, I can take that dude on. So he stretched his faith through adversity. So testing, testing. can often grow faith. Yes. Consider it pure joy when you face trials and tribulations of every kind. James 1. Is that the one I'm thinking of? It uh, could be. Uh, <laughs> and so we should pray for more faith. Yes, we should. Yeah, but be, be aware that to pray for more faith usually means you're asking for more adversity. Oh, oh faith, sorry, so what? You, that's we, not part of the deal. That's not part of the, wouldn't it be nice if we had faith without adversity? But that's how faith happens. It's a muscle. We, Pastor Phil says, faith like a muscle. And you're going to go to the gym, you're going to grow bigger muscles by stretching it. And actually by stretching and damaging it and then having it grow back stronger. James, one dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that your faith is tested. Your endurance then has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you'll be perfect and complete, needing nothing. Wouldn't it be great to just go straight to the needing nothing without the <laughs> faith and the endurance? But yeah, that's the pattern. Stretch your faith. So this is what I like about you, Pastor Rowan. Essentially what you just said then is if you don't want adversity, <laughs> adversity don't, don't pray for faith. faith. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Okay. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> that's not exactly what I was saying, Jeannie. It's not because that's what I got. <laughs> that's what you heard. Yeah. <laughs> oh no! And in verse in verse six, believe me, there are days where I think, "Oh, this is all too hard." This is I'll too just, hard. I'll just stick to the easy stuff. Thanks, Lord. <laughs> just wind the clock back. Yeah. All right. Verse six. It talks about God has given us different gifts for doing certain things. Sure. Uh, when I talk to people, my friends, and things, there's this sort of common understanding or common thought or question, rather. Why is it so difficult to discover and realize our gifts? Yeah. That is the number one question I've been asked in all my years of pastoral ministry. How do I know what God's will for my life is? I think it's the same. It's number one question for my you know pastor that i really like well i do really like you too but pastor rick warren rick warren Saddleback, yeah. yeah yeah well he wrote the purpose driven life but yes still, yeah exactly yeah that's the number one question how do i know god's will for my life yeah um and we're not going to answer that in a couple of minutes i'll give you an answer yeah go for it read the bible 
Yeah, that's study. Because here yeah, it tells you yep. what's your will. Worship God. Yep. Love people. Micah 6, 8. Micah, yeah. The Bible in a verse, my pastor yeah. Bob used to say. Your purpose. What does the Lord yeah. require of you? That's purpose. But we're talking about gifting. Don't get me off yeah. track. Yeah. Gifting. Yeah. So how do we find our gifts is what you're saying? Yeah. Why is it so difficult to know what our gifts are? Um, it, it's There's a whole number of reasons. There's not any one reason why people will struggle to find the purpose of God. What I can say is that the more you stay in community, the more you um, stay in his word, stay in prayer, stay in worship, serve him with what you have in front of you right now, then the more you, more you do those things, the more you will discover your purpose, your gifts, they will come to life. And and people can show you those things. You can reflect on it prayerfully. So it's not a one-size-fits-all. Here's the miracle answer to discover what you're good at and what your gifts are. But I think if you do all those things consistently, then you will grow in your gifts and you will discover your purpose. So use what you have today, what's in yeah. your hand, do what you can today, and these things will be shown to you. Yeah, so that is absolutely it in a nutshell. When God says to Moses, go back and get the rescue my people from the Egyptians. And he goes, "What do I? how am I supposed to do that? And God's answer to him is, hey, Mo, what have you got in your hand? What, this thing? This staff? He goes, yeah, yeah, that thing. So his question is, what is in your hand? And if you read it, I can't remember exactly where it is, probably Exodus 6, 7, something. You read this, the it's called the staff, Moses' staff. He goes up on the mountain with a staff and he comes back with what they call what it changes and it's called, it goes from being a staff to being the rod of God. So God has Moses has used what's in his hand. What all that he had was just this staff. And whatever you have in your hand submitted to God will turn into the rod of God. Does that make sense? Yes. The so little so gifts that you offer to God become so much more than that. You might feel like I've yep. just got a wooden staff in my hand, but God can turn that into a mighty rod. And what he's after is a willing and trusting heart. That's it. To use what we have now. Yeah, be faithful with what you have. The one who is faithful with little can be faithful with much. Don't think, oh, when I've got enough money, I'll tithe. Or when I've got enough money, I'll, when I've got enough time, I'll serve the church or I'll serve in that charity or whatever. Don't think that way. Because if you don't do it with little, you won't do it with much. Be faithful with what, you can, what you've got now and see that God will build it and bless it. That's pretty cool. It's amazing. It's pretty good. <laughs> so I'm going to go to Romans 13, 13 because I think that you really summed that up. I have. Is this our last chapter, or have we got another I one think, after this? Oh my gosh! I think we do. All right. Okay. I'll, I'll pick one question then. Sure, one question. Romans 13. Uh, I'm just going to read the first sentence again just to get us into it. Everyone must submit to governing authorities for all authority comes from God and those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. So anyone who rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted and they will be punished. Wow. Bom, bom. What's the authority he's speaking about here? The Roman government. Yes. The oppressive regime. That See, is yes. This is one of those things you have to read it in context. Mm. He's speaking about the, the oppressive reg regime then. And interestingly, how would this have felt to the Jews at the time? Or, well, or so not felt? What would they have thought of this? This would so have been well, shocking. Well, he is writing to Christians in Rome. 
in the capital city of the Roman Empire. Are they Jewish or are they Gentile? Okay, they're both. A little bit of history with the book of Romans, just quickly, is that this is written after a period of time. Nero, Emperor Nero, expelled all the Jews from Rome for a period of time. Um, Historians believe that he blamed the burning of the burning of the city, the the great fire of Rome that happened in his time. Uh, He blamed it on the Christians and expelled the Christians from the city. Uh, Most historians believe now that he burned the city down deliberately himself as the Roman emperor because he wanted to rebuild it in his name, call it Neropolis, something like that. He wanted to name it after himself, so he set his own city on fire so he could rebuild it. Um, But he blamed the Christians and they were expelled. So um, among them were um, uh, Ananias and Sapphira, I think. I think they were among them. But anyway, a number of Christians were expelled from Rome and then sometime later, they were allowed to go back again. And so what had happened is this church had started as a Jewish and a little bit of Gentile church. And then for a period of a decade or so, all Jews had been expelled from Rome and this church had become a a Gentile church. Then the Jews come back and they're trying to fit back in and it's all clunky because they've now got a Gentile church that's been trying to figure out Christian life and you've got Jewish Christians trying to come back and connect and work out what it looks like. So he's dealing with Jews and Gentiles together. And he's talking to them about authority in the Roman capital. He's talking to Jews that have just been expelled from... I mean, I don't think the Jews are thinking favourably about the Romans at this time. And he is telling the Jews and the Gentiles, you need to submit to the governing authorities. Because if you do, you will live an easier life. Yeah. Which tells me something about... He's making a claim here. We, We can paint these Romans in really, really dark terms. And yeah, don't get me wrong, that government, this Roman government was capable of some horrible atrocities, like I just said about Emperor Nero and some of those others. But that's not to say that every single Roman soldier and every person that was part of the Roman Senate was evil and wicked and selfish. Uh, they, it was a time of unprecedented affluence. Um, there was a lot of good that the Roman Empire did. P- travel was safe because of the Roman Empire. So there were a lot of good things it did. Um, it brought about justice. It had a, there was a degree of justice in the Roman Empire that, um, that wasn't there in, under other um, empires previous to this. Far from perfect. By far <laughs> from perfect. But there was still some good there. And he's saying, this is the best we've got right now. This is God's authority. And they've been placed there by God for a purpose. So do the right thing. Pay your taxes. Honour them. Um, I think Peter actually says in his, go- in his writing somewhere, he actually says, um, you know, be, do the right thing by the authorities. They don't bear the sword for no reason. In other words, they have gi- been given an authority to bring justice to the world and they'll use it if they have to. He's clearly asking them to mm. work within the system. And then he echoes Jesus' sentiment here in later verses in verse 10 where he says, love your neighbour. Yeah, the great law as commanded in Scripture. So is he, is he sort of emphasising the most important thing about your life isn't to be angry about the government but is to rather act in love to your neighbour because love actually does fulfil the law. Love is the answer to all these yes, questions. I believe so. And I think this is what many Christians today are missing. How do we interact with the government and the authorities? And I just keep coming back to the New Testament. I don't see first century New Testament Christians spending all their time protesting against the government. I see them doing exactly what you just said. I see them loving their enemy. I see them reaching out and taking in the oppressed and the vulnerable and caring for them. And we know they did that in Rome. We know they did that. 
Yeah, they actually uh, there was a big plague, and they were the only ones who went out and helped people. Yeah, most of the, most of the elite from Rome head, headed for the hills to get out of town. So Christianity at this time is actually built on going the mile, the extra, extra mile, mile, loving these people, yeah. rescuing people who are yeah, hurt, sure. rather than complaining. Yeah, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, but it's I one question that comes to mind is like. It, and we looking at it in our context, but what if the government you live live under is really bad and like terrible abuses? Yeah. Paul isn't necessarily saying don't want to change your government, is he? Um, He's. What were you going to say? I cut you off. No, no. Um, so, in its context, it had no possible. We're talking about a fledgling movement here. They had. There's no way in which. They had enough influence to change the government. So it wasn't even on their cards. Okay, so this is mm. one of the arguments that potentially strip changes what I said a little bit before I said a minute ago. There was it was a very limited democracy. It was a form of democracy, but fairly limited. Um, and pretty much an empire at this time. So they the thought that they could actually somehow turn the government around by doing anything in the natural political was crazy, right? I think we're not in that point anymore. I think we have the power of the vote and we have the opportunity to change things and lobby and talk to government on behalf yeah. of Yeah, well, we have justice. the idea that the government works for us. Yes, that's right. That's what democracy oh. is. The government works for us. And so we've that's a beautiful gift that we should use. Uh, but I think we can do that in a way that isn't ranting and raving against the government. I think that's the fine line that we need to walk. If we, if we burst out of anger and hatred towards the government, that's not going to... That's not in line with the New Testament. But I think we can lobby government. We can relate to our local politicians. We can talk to them. We can represent Christ and his values to them. And I think that's actually something that we're bl still blessed to be able to do. The, co the time may come when that's not the case and you're back as such a minority movement such as this where you don't have that. Um, but while we have that opportunity, we should use it. And so as uh, in the later verses he goes on and he talks about how we shouldn't participate in the world, you know, we shouldn't be drunk, we shouldn't have immoral sort of lives. Uh, I like to look at, look at this here as he's asking us to focus more on mission, you know, in being different, in being Christians yeah. and being loved to each other. Yeah. And rather than being caught up in the world. Yes, yeah. Be so radically different that, it, that it's, uh, it's obvious. Now, the great civil rights movement in the United States in the 1960s was an uprising, but it was based around a righteousness. So MLK and, and those guys, they were, you know, he was a Christian minister, Baptist minister, so he was speaking up for justice and did it through rallying and gathering people together. And it wasn't perfect, but one of the things MLK did was he constantly came back to, uh, this is rooted in Christian love. We're standing up for the vulnerable here and for African-American rights and so on, but we... But it's not that, we'd, it, that we're going to just roll over. We're going to stand up because we believe this is truth and we believe we should do this. But any time it got out of hand, MLK would often say, you know, that's not the way it is. It's not the way it should be. You know, turn the other cheek if you need to. I have a vision, but the vision has come through laying down your lives. I mean, Rosa Parks broke the law by not getting up from that seat on that bus. So there was civil, he called it civil disobedience. Um, so there is... I would have to say that shows that there is a place for civil disobedience if it if the the laws of the Lord uh, they supersede the laws of the land and if they're not coming into line with it there may be a place for civil disobedience but I think our attitude in all of that is really important 
if our attitude is bitterness or arrogance, then we're not in line with the gospel. Don't be, it says there at the end, don't be involved in quarreling and jealousy. Instead, clothe yourself with the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I think if we can do that, it may require civil disobedience at times, but it'll still be done with a, a graciousness and a, and a um, respect that people will, will honour. Sorry, I just kicked Gene's microphone there if you're worried oh. about the noise. <laughs> He's sick of me talking. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was doing the talking then. That, no, yes, you were talking and you were speaking, saying a lot of some things and making a lot of sense. And um, we certainly do need sometimes that civil disobedience. Yeah. Because, you know, we are still, like we said before, crying out for justice. And yes, we do need right. laws to change. And we yeah. do need, um, we need civ- cultures to be able to have faith, express mm. their faith. There's lots of things that needs to yes, change about right. the world. We're not perfect. And we're, not, we're not perfect. No. But let's do what we can do within the context of remembering love. And respect for the image of humanity in all people. Just because someone's an enemy doesn't mean we hate them. In fact, Jesus says love them. Yeah. <laughs> We've said that quite a What's lot. What's our final we? chapter, Jeannie? Uh, it's actually just going on from that. Chapter 14, 14. Uh, which is sort of... Romans 14. Re- Romans 14. <laughs> yes. Oh, that's a big topic, Jeannie. It is a big topic. How long can we talk? How long is a string of whatever... Where were you going to go with Romans 14? Uh, well, I think that while he's discussing how we should lift, live differently, we should look differently, uh, it seems to me that Paul is trying to form a new kind of group of people. And um, so this is the church, right? That's who we should be under authority of God yep. and loving each other. So this is a church, remember, who are trying to figure out what it looks like to, after being a decade apart, trying to fit back together. And do we obey Jewish law or don't we obey Jewish law? What does it look like to live like a Christian? I, I have these freedoms and now you're telling me I can't have those freedoms. You're saying I drink alcohol. Now you're saying I shouldn't drink alcohol. I'm eating this meat. You're saying I shouldn't. That's the what's going on in the context of this passage. That's a very good way to put it <laughs> rather than me just reading it. But uh, this is what I do want to ask. So some people can... Some people are saying you should drink this or drink that or not drink that or not this. And this um, puts in my focus at this point, the church. So often we argue about the right way to worship and uh, how or even what the Holy Spirit is and all these sort of things. But is Paul making the statement here that we should be just really united in our faith and the mission of converting believers or maybe he's saying that another one. I'm now confused with what we're all reading. Because I say this because of in a couple of readings before we didn't mention it when Jesus prays that we all need to be united. Yep, yep. I don't think Jesus is praying that we need, be, need to be united, that each church needs to be the same. No. Each believer needs to be the no. same. In fact, he Rather, we're united. allows for diversity but united in Jesus. United in Jesus, united yep. in our love and belief of him and yep. the purposes. And, and the purposes. So Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 8 go together. They're very similar themes addressing this whole issue. What does it look like for believers to embrace difference? Like you said, you're trying to figure out whether or not one, one person allows for worship on a certain day, another one doesn't. 
one person says it's okay to drink alcohol, another one doesn't. One person says it's okay to eat meat sacrificed to an idol, another one doesn't. Where do you, how, how can you reconcile those differences and still be united? Because they seem like they're irreconcilable differences. And this has been the case throughout history. You know, churches will split over whether or not you can drink alcohol or whether or not you should go to the movies. Or I've heard people say, oh, whether or not you should have a guitar on stage. In fact, I've heard people say you couldn't have, well, drums. You can't have drums on stage because drums are of the devil. <laughs> or it's okay to play a guitar as long as you keep it up around your chest and don't put it down around your, your hips because if you put it down too low, that's what, that's what rockers do. And the list goes on and You've on. You've had a long life in ministry. <laughs> oh, well, the list goes on and on with things on that divide us. Mm -hmm. And they're ultimately this same issue. And Paul is trying to say, uh, the overarching theme here must be be willing to give up your rights for the peace of others. So he says, hey, I can play guitar however I want. I can play drums in church however I want. I can drink alcohol however I want. However, I'm not going to let my freedom cause a weaker brother or sister to stumble. So I will be willing to give up my rights if I can help someone else to um, to build a bridge of unity towards that person so that the church could stay united. That's the overarching thing that Paul's talking about. He says, let's see if I can find this in a... In a, in a um, verse 14. I know and am fully convinced of the authority that no food in and of itself, and by food there you can replace it with any of those things I said that separate us. No food is wrong to eat, but if someone believes it's wrong, then for that person it's wrong. No movie is wrong, whatever, you know, what, whatever it might be. Go to... Some people don't like sci-fi movies. I don't have a problem. I love sci-fi movies. But, but just because I like it doesn't mean I'm necessarily going to invite someone along to the movies who might be freaked out by that. If another believer is distressed by what you eat, you're not acting in love if you eat. Don't let your eating ruin someone for whom Christ died. So in this context, he is asking and pleading with these Romans, for goodness sake, and these church in Rome, be willing to give up what you think is important around your behaviours and practices so that you can maintain unity at all costs. And in, yes, but what makes me think is there's that verse in uh, the part in verse 23 uh, where it's, it basically says, if you make a, a rule, then it becomes a rule before God. And that brings me back to the Nazarites before Samson had this vow and it wasn't, to other people, they could cut their hair, but because he had yeah. made it a rule, yeah. he couldn't cut it, cut the hair. Yeah. So is this is this saying if we make something undoable before God, if we then go and do it, is that a sin? Uh, yeah, we're violating our own commitments or our own convictions, as the word is uses there. Yes, um, with a little bit of nuance. For instance, and this, uh, I think most people listening to this will, will understand it in one form or another. There are certain behaviours or actions or things that when I was first a Christian um, that I could not do. Um, I was a massive, as a teenager, I was massively into Dungeons and Dragons, for instance. Oh, gosh, don't tell fan. us that. Yeah, I was a massive, <laughs> I spent plenty of hours playing D&D &D as a teenager. Um, however, becoming a Christian, um, that thing was an idol in my world. It was way too big and way too important to me as a teenager. And I had to let that go. I've never picked up D&D &D again since, but that's. But the point is, um, and I gave up, in the process of that, I gave up, I, I, I'd read Lord of the Rings, and I went, oh, no, I can't add that. It's got monsters in it, and it's got all this sort of stuff. So I, I thought it was impure, unclean to um, 
to read Lord of the Rings. So I, I put it all away and got rid of it all. And no, I wasn't going to have anything to do with that. As I matured in the Lord, I've come back to a lot of that and gone, oh, I can watch Lord of the Rings. And I'm a massive fan of Lord of the Rings now. But for some people, and I know people, godly people who go, I can't watch Lord of the Rings. Because to me, it's just like it says there, for that person, it is something that's wrong for them. It, maybe they've had a history in the occult or something like that, and it triggers something for them. So they can't watch Lord of the Rings. So I want to I make sure that while I've matured and I can enjoy Lord of the Rings and it doesn't conflict with my faith, I need to make sure that, um, and even hearing you say, this is why I'm saying it on a podcast, because maybe you're out there and the Lord of the Rings is an issue for you, and you're straight away thinking, oh, I can't hang out with Pastor Rowan anymore because... <laughs> Heaven forbid, he likes Lord of the Rings. Well, I would point you to 1 Corinthians 8 and Romans 14, if that's you, and say, realize that in this context, you stick to what you believe and don't, don't let my freedom fool you if you've had an inner conviction about that. But also don't become judgmental and critical about me because you've impl- you're implying your rules upon me. And then it's incumbent on me not to imply, employ my, my rules upon you. Well, yeah, exactly. And in verse 12, it says this clearly. We will give a personal account for ourselves. It doesn't say for our neighbor. That's it. You got it. We're giving a personal account for ourselves, not you. You But then it goes on and says in 13, stop condemning each other. Decide instead to live in such a way that you'll not cause another believer to stumble. See the selfless living there? Yes, I, will I, do. Not, yeah. I will give up my rights and my freedoms so that another believer Do we have to care flourish, for each other? Care for one another. And see what bothers somebody else yeah. and, and be mindful of and that. Do you know why this is so attractive and so important? Because this is what Jesus said. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples, that you love one another. This is attractive. When the world is backbiting against each other, if they can find a community of people who prefer one another over themselves, that's incredibly attractive. Are we kind of seeing... No. Maybe not. I was going to say, are we kind of seeing this play out in this sort of offence world that we live in now? We have to be careful not to hurt each other. We have to be careful right. not what to do and say. Um, I, I would say the problem there is... Big question. <laughs> no, I would say quickly that, that the problem with that is that we're living in a cancel culture. Oh, yeah. Okay. Which says, um, I do, I, you can't offend me. If you offend me, I'm going to cancel you. It's actually the opposite of what Paul is saying. So it's, it's saying, how dare your freedom be offensive to me, where Paul is saying, I'm not going to let my freedom be offensive to you. It's, just, it's a complete it's a big reverse. difference. There's a big difference. One is about selfish living. One is about selfless living. I can have my rights, and how dare you tell me that I can't have my rights? Selfless living says, I have my rights, and I'm willingly giving up my rights for you. And that's the difference between us being in the world. And not of the world. Of the world. That's right. See why Mm. I think as the world gets darker and polarized, this is right for us. Because this this will become attractive when Christians are no longer saying, hey, you've taken away my rights, but saying, hey, we had rights, but we're going to give them up because we love you. And hey, I actually think my rights are right and your rights are wrong. I'm not going to impose my rights on you. I'm going to give up my rights and serve you. That's incredibly attractive to people. Just make a, a point here. We're not talking about what's true for you, what's true for me. We're no, talking we're not talking about, about that. No, right. I'm not talking about your truth. I your mean, truth. I'm not saying that because there is absolute moral truth that we hold to. It's just that my job is not to impose that moral truth upon other people. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, it's not my business to judge those outside the church. God will judge those outside the church. It's my business to judge those inside the church, to create a community where we uphold a moral standard that's so attractive to others. 
It's not my job to impose my beliefs upon other people. Even if I am doing civil disobedience, I'm not telling them how to have to believe. I'm just saying I'm prepared to give up my freedoms because I believe that this is an important thing to do. Rosa Parks wasn't fighting for her rights. She was fighting, she might have been an African-American woman, but she was doing that on behalf of all African-American people who were in Louisiana and beyond who were suffering at the hands of an unjust rule. I have one final question for you. Go for it. Okay. Going back to what you were saying about Dungeons and Dragons being not right for you at the moment, or at that, ta- right at that time and other things, does the Holy Spirit individually, personally convict? Yes, and he will also use other brothers and sisters. He will work through community as well. So that was the Holy Spirit saying to you, hey, Rowan, this isn't good for you right now. Focus on me, God, instead of Dungeons and Dragons yes. as your personal conviction. Yes. So as your uh, oh, Yes, and I was probably encouraged, I don't recall, but I was probably encouraged to give that up for a season as well. And I've encouraged people, hey, that thing's probably not good for you. I, I had a guy I knew who had a massive Star Wars Lego collection, like massive Star Wars Lego collection. It was his idol. He, he got rid of the whole thing. I mean, he probably regrets it now. I bet he does. But it was because yeah. it would be worth a fortune. But to him, it was it was it had become an idol and he had to get rid of that thing. And yet now, he has a massive Star Wars collection. He's probably, I know, you know, much more mature. He'd be okay with that now. So everybody... Uh, you, you, there are things that will vie for your attention and you need to put God first. So we sort of have to figure it out. Figure it out, listening to the Lord, relying on your conscience, but figure it out in community. Don't just do this on your own. We're not, this, is, this language is corporate language here. This is, Romans 12 is about doing life together, not just individual. It's all corporate language, how, you know, relating to one another. Christian life is done in community. And that's why we're doing this podcast. That's I it. know that it was one of the reasons behind it, so that we are reading this in community together. Yeah. And I think we've covered enough for this time. Ooh. Yeah, I don't even know. I ha- are we still recording? Oh, we've I, I hope talked the battery hasn't gone flat or the hard drive yeah. hasn't run out yeah. of memory. <laughs> but I want to thank you for listening to us. And next week, uh, it's going to be Amanda. Oh, she she's might be a bit, she might ask more simple yeah. questions. <laughs> no, I don't know about that. <laughs> she's got, she's a good woman of God and she's got a lot of things on her mind. So she's going to have a great uh, time sitting oh, down with you. Right. She's going to prepare a lot for that. So yeah. thanks so much for and listening thank you, to Jeannie. us. Thank you, everyone. Yeah. All right, take care, may God bless you and have a great week. See you next time.